Hi, welcome to Sweetman Podcast. I'm your host, I'm Simon Sweetman. My thanks to Tea Leaf Tea, Yeasty Boys and La Petit Chocolat. This is a conversation with my friend Carl Shuka. He is an author. I've known Carl for a long time. He went through the IIML creative writing course with my wife, Katie. Uh, she wasn't my wife at the time, um, but she was my friend. And from there, Carl and Anna Smale had a friendship that blossomed into a relationship and they are a married couple of writers. Katie and I are obviously together and so we're friends and so I've known Carl for a long time and I've always wanted to talk to him for the podcast and I thought he'd be a great guest because uh, he's done some great stuff and then he released what I think is his best book to date, A Mistake. Um, it's, it's fairly new, it's a couple of months out and it's a, a wonderful book. Uh, I haven't read all of Carl's uh, books, but I loved his his very first novel, Lazy Boys, and uh, we talked about well, we talked about all of the books in some way, but we talked about his life and writing and the like, you know the the struggle that people creative people have to uh, are they doing the right thing? What's the alternative? Is the alternative to not bother? We had a big old chat. We had uh, several drinks before and during this chat. It was a friendly catch up, but a planned podcast. Uh, I didn't just spring the microphone on him. We we didn't know that was happening. But um, yeah, this what I'm trying to say is this probably has a slightly different feel to some of the other recorded conversations. It's far less of an interview. Um, I really enjoyed, you know, it's a challenge to interview people that you know well uh, or to chat with them for a recording. And so uh, I loved this conversation and hearing this side of Carl, and I hope you do too. Quite often I talk about how I know someone or how long I've known them and that and I guess it's tricky to work out how to start this one because we've known each other for quite a while. Yeah. But uh, and, and I was thinking actually before we came around here, probably there's only four or five other people that I've done a podcast with that I've known for longer. Yeah. And in, in a funny kind of way. Like, yeah, well I, I remember um, early days before you were with um, Katie and mm. I, I've got this really vivid kind of awful memory. Not, not of you particularly, but of... Um, so, me and Katie and Anna, we were doing that MA in 2001. Yeah. Mm. And you were, at that time, friends with Katie. And occasionally, yeah, there'd be people who had parties and stuff. Yeah. And you had this party over at... Um, there was a party at... I think, I think it was either your house or Katie's house. And I remember I was wearing these... Um, what I wore at the time, these big ass caterpillar boots. Yeah. And I remember going over to this party and being in quite a dark place, I guess. And like walking to this party and you were so hostile. <laughs> you were such a bastard, frankly. Yeah. yeah. And you hated us all. And I remember like walking through this party and the vibes were super, super dark. <laughs> and it was somebody else's house. And I don't know where I was. It was yeah. somewhere in... Um, Mount Cook and it felt like a million miles away from yeah. where I live which yeah. was like must have been Katie's house yeah right and and I just remember walking in and all your friends were there it was super hostile and I remember feeling on these huge caterpillar boots <laughs> kicking a vessel yeah and I just thought I remember thinking like fuck have I kicked something have I kicked a glass over I actually don't care yeah, yeah. I'm carrying on yeah and then I remember seeing a guy get up, going, like, seeing that I kicked someone's glass over and there was shit all over someone. It was white carpet. I just remember, bad vibes, bad vibes everywhere. And then it all 
you know, it was all very dry. And it all <laughs> ended with the Strokes playing really, really loud, Is This It, and standing on, like, uh, some kind of weird veranda looking over Mount Cook, dancing, and... <laughs> Yeah, but I just remember wow. that I mean, sinister I, yeah. vibes. Wow. You know? I sort of do remember Sounds that. Sounds kind of banal but, now, yeah, but... <laughs> no, I love it. I was just like, what a great place the, the, the to start. The tension, you know? What a great place to start. Because, yeah, I mean, I remember, like, knowing Katie and knowing she was doing the course, and the Man High course was obviously um, much, you know, spoken about and, yeah. and all of that. And then she would tell me about um, people in her year right. a little bit and yeah. then I got to know you know very vaguely Rachel and you and Anna and that is about it I think and by the end of the year I might have met a couple more and then after that uh, maybe Gabe as well right. and then after that I got to know a few others and actually quite a few people I've podcasted have been through that course and we end up talking about it because it's an interesting thing I think like yeah. it's a, and we'll get to that but but uh, we, we've since got to know each other a lot better than how you've set that up. <laughs> let's, yeah. let's, let's, um, so you're, well, to, to, to fix that up and frame that, I'm now married to Katie, you're married to Anna. Yeah. We know each other well. We've got kids the same age. We've got, a ki- you know, children the same age who are friends. Yeah. Um, Your friends don't sort of want to kick my head in there. Yeah, 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 that's right. Let's go. Let's go all the way back to before we ever knew anything about each other. You okay. grew up in Timaru. Yeah. And what was happening there? Uh, there wasn't anything happening in there. Um, it was it was known as the Riviera of the South um, back in the day, but because um, I think I've pre- spent precisely half an hour in Timaru in yeah, my life, and yeah. I know a lot of people from Timaru. It turns out now. I, th- I think up until probably about the age of twelve, um, it was idyllic. Right? Yeah, yeah, and and it was like the kind of place where. Um, you tell your parents, I'm going downtown with mm. my friend. Mm. And you literally go on your bike and you ride downtown and you spend the rest of the day until, you know, 5.30, until it gets dark, just mm. doing whatever the hell you want. Mm. And, and stuff like, stuff I didn't realise that, you know, some people still take for granted, but I didn't realise I was taking for granted, was we used to, like, go to a tennis court me and my friends and play tennis, you know, poorly, but play tennis against each other on a proper tennis court that was completely empty until it got too dark to play. And there was like complete freedom mm. and complete like emptiness. And then you hit 12 and you suddenly start looking for culture and you start looking for meaning and it's not mm. there. Yeah, I was going to say like, when you grow up, it doesn't matter where you are. Like the main things in your life are, are there some people to look after me? Like yeah. it's going quite well. <laughs> like I've got parents, I've got siblings, and they're and they're sorting things. Yeah, yeah, and uh, my needs. Yeah. You know, this is very privileged, but our You're my needs seem of, to be getting met. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're sort of conscious of relative wealth. Yes. Like, you start to work out through your school friends. Yeah. They're better off than yeah, yeah, yeah. that kid, guy's kids had a rough time. Yes, stuff, yes. Aren't they? Yeah. And you notice the kid who has a jet ski kind of thing. Mm, and mm. I think that situation has just gotten far, far worse down there mm. because of dairy money, but mm. you know. So we, you say you get to about twelve and you yeah, you start looking for culture. Mm. And did you have to look further afield than your own house? 
Um, and you know what? Uh, this will have deep meaning to about four of your listeners. That's, yeah, double the number that I have. So. <laughs> <laughs> Warren Prentice started a record store called Rhino Records. And he started it in Timaru. And, oh, if I could figure the year, maybe maybe the mid-80s. Mm. And he started it in this absurd place, basically on the road out of Timaru. And it's like you had to make a journey to get there. And nobody would go there. God knows how he funded it. I, I don't know the backstory behind it. But he moved it into town eventually. And we would we went to Rhino Records for culture. And because of the way he curates stuff, he was actually, he was getting airmail and C-mail NMEs coming in. Mm. So you could get the current one, which you couldn't afford, or you get a three-month-old one, which you could afford. And that was how you could stay up to date on um, basically Manchester. Mm. Manchester was happening. Mm, mm. And, and he was bringing in sick stuff, like... Um, the seven inch of higher than the sun, which I bought. Um, he was bringing uh, like the end of shoegaze. So I remember him trying hard to sell me Chapter House, and I was like, I, I <laughs> don't know, <laughs> still not sure. But you know, some of my seminal vinyl is from there, and it's stuff like Sephirosa. Mm, mm. Sephirosa on vinyl when you're fifteen or sixteen. And you take it home and it's yours. That's like mm. sacred, sacred mm. stuff. I was probably mm. a bit older than that. Well, what were your parents listening to? Or, like, were you at all pushed towards music or any arts by your parents? Well, it was Herb Alpert and his Tijuana Brass. And Did you love that? Mantovani Orchestra. No, no. These were just the records that just sat there yeah. and listened to because yeah. zero, zero attraction. To yeah. But what we did have, we had this weird thing early on. Um, this record club which is like a like a 70s kind of swinger club thing going on where they had a one person chose a record they farmed that record out to about eight other people and those people were to listen to it and record it on a cassette tape hmm. and then eventually it came back to the owner who got to keep it <laughs> and then you got to have the choices of all these other people hmm. at a workplace like so we chose Aha's Hunting High and Low, and we thought we were very, very onto it choosing that. But everybody else chose just terrible, terrible stuff. And anyway, <laughs> anyway, so our David Bowie was quote unquote too weird for my parents, and we had we had a, a Beatles compilation, and we had the Cars. And the, the cars were actually really important to me. Yeah, yeah. Like they're a great, they're a great band. Rick Kasich is kind of a genius. Mm, yeah, no, I agree. Yeah. And then you find out, like down the track, he produces things like Weezer. Yeah. And you're like, that makes sense. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like he has that kind of um, what's the LCD? Is it James Murphy? Yeah. Yeah, he has that kind of sensitivity yes, for yes. like studio sound. Yeah. How things should sound. Yeah. So. Yeah, records like that. I remember like sitting there like a kid with my headphones on, mm. at the stereo. Everybody else watching TV and like getting goosebumps up my spine, mm. listening mm. to the Cars. I'm constantly like the Cars' greatest hits is yeah. the single disc 
you know, whenever that came out in the in the 80s, like when they rounded off their career the first time, that's like not only one of the great compilation albums of all time, but that's definitely the best Cars album. Like, yeah. I know you're not supposed to, you know, like you're supposed to go, oh, I like Heartbeat City or I like whatever, <laughs> you know, Candio, but, and the, they did do good albums, but that Cars Greatest Hits is a perfect album. Yeah. That was just so, I don't know how that came into my life. I think my dad had a tape of that, but that was just really important to me. I'm far from deep in their distog- discography, but yeah, yeah, I do remember that, like, being super, super young mm. and, and getting goosebumps to yeah. yeah, just really cool songs, really interesting production ideas and like who were they and you know, what did they do? Where did they come from? Like, yeah, yeah, you know? yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So I mean what else do you connect with in, in, in your early years? Like are you a big reader? When do you become a big reader? Um, yeah, so God, I didn't think you were gonna talk about Tim Roo. Um We don't have to. I think it's I was thinking about Stephen King actually, and I, I like we, you were trying to get rid of a whole lot of Stephen King the other day, and I was like, "Give it to me, yeah, give it all to yeah, me." Yeah, yeah. And you took some. Well, I remember that period, like being. You, you're such a collection of file when yeah. you when you're in that age group, and you're like, I must have all the action figures that I can afford. Yes. And I must have all the toys that I can afford. And which ones am I going to have? And yeah. I choose them carefully. And I actually spend more time choosing than I will playing. Yeah. But when it came to reading, it was like, what's on the bookshelves? And you get access to stuff like Frederick Forsyth and Sven Castle. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Do you know these? I know the names. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I brought up Sven Castle at the Auckland Writers Festival and everybody just like, Steal it. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, when you're that age and you're in that environment, you just read all that stuff because that's what's around. And it's... It's trash, but it also teaches you about trash. Yeah. It teaches you about, like, um, the good parts and the bad parts of genre, really. Like, you get to the point where you've read, you know, you're hanging up for the next Stephen King, and you're hanging up for the next Stephen King, and it arrives, and you're like, oh, well, I've, I've got enough, enough money to buy the next one. Mm. Um, and then you start going like, yeah, I, I would have done it differently, Stephen. <laughs> did you read the Willard Price adventure series no that was my thing right. and then it was Stephen King like right. those are the things I remember there was you know there was obviously lots of other stuff and there was like comic books and cartoons Garfield and yeah, Asterix yeah, yeah, yeah. and all that stuff but I'm um, sort of the, skipping yeah no, the authors I remember are the Willard Price adventure series of books for boys which were you know I thought they were written as I was reading them but it turns out they were written They'd years be before that. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then, but Stephen King was massive. It was totally like, dominate. You know yeah. what's next? What's next? And, and you were, and you were reading them in real, relevant. To yeah, like you were reading them in real time, time but, New Zealand. but also catching up with these things from the. Because here's a guy who'd been publishing since the seventies. Yeah. But if you're reading them in the eighties and the nineties, he was pumping out so much new stuff. Yeah. That you were both grabbing the brand new book and still catching up. It was his cocaine period, I think. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, it was amazing. And I mean, you know, I just yeah, I've I've done my dash with that stuff as people jettison records or whatever else. Yeah. So well when do you leave Timura and what do you do? So you Well you go through the alienation zone and that lasts like 
everybody high school all my friends anyway used to call me a late bloomer it's kind of true um so you you start for me anyway so i kind of went into it like a from 16 to 21 to like quite a quite a difficult to negotiate depression while still trying to make school and university work and um, at school because you've got you've got home and you've got parents who basically care for your your life you can make it work but essentially I didn't want to I didn't want to be there and I didn't want to be doing any of the things I was doing and um, two of my closest friends left went to Japan in sixth form so I kind of lost those friends and I kind of had to make new friends and um, you you don't have a character when you're 17, 18 and you kind of want to you need to develop a character through your choices you make right and the choices I was making were developing a character that I think wasn't anything related to who I really was was or or should have been yeah it was like I was trying to build somebody in terms of forces and it was it was horrible I was making really really bad choices and and I want to relate this to music because it's a music podcast Mm. and I'm still obsessed with this track it's called The Night Train by Guns N' Roses and what I always had the sense of was um at night you know you've got to get on the night train Mm. I'm on the night train and I'm ready to crash and burn (laughs) I never learn I'm on the night train And it was always about, like, we have to find the next amazing um, emergency or the next thing for everything to go insanely wild or wrong. And, you know, I, I was making small, insignificant to anybody else, but really bad choices for me. It was all gone south, frankly. But, I, you know, I had enough of an infrastructure around me that I could get enrolled in university and, and turn up and um, be, you know, basically get through my first year, but it was all going rapidly south. What's your worst, um, biggest regret from that time? When you think about it now. What, what, what's Tens of thousands of dollars of student loan. Yeah. Um, years of wasted time. Um hating myself and doubting myself and not doing anything productive um see we have to be careful because we didn't know each other then but you're about to trigger me i think oh, right. yeah, yeah, <laughs> this, is, this is very yeah er- I think it's a pretty early thing. yeah well yeah. Uh, yeah we we were right at that we were right at that sweet spot of um all those that huge bulge in suicide figures and mm. you know it was all around us and you know you count your lucky stars you didn't partake of that how uh close did you come to thinking about that at all well um i don't know 
you think about it all the time, but that's like one of those, what they say, the, one of the great comforts, don't you? Don't they say that? Um, it was a very difficult time, which I think a lot of people are going through similar things, and luckily I got out of it. Um, you know, there wasn't social media, so there wasn't awareness of stuff. There wasn't, there weren't communities that, like, people could... So, the importance of bands like Manic Street Preachers to, certainly to me and to a lot of people in, you know, small, isolated communities all over the goddamn world, probably, you know, was, it cannot be understated. Mm. Like a symbolic figure mm. who sort of spoke in terms of purity and, and you know, ideals and and actually had some of those kind of same behaviours that you were um, dealing with. Yeah, that, mm. was, that was pretty important. Mm. And you encountered that through those, you know, C-male enemies. It's funny actually, isn't it, how we always say like, oh, I'm glad social media wasn't around then because, you know, I, I wouldn't want photos of myself and videos of what I was doing uploaded, mm -hmm. but actually, like, for all of that, we missed out on the major support yeah. that is actually there in social media. Yeah, especially in, in the South and New Zealand, you know, which, you know, one forgets how, like, how lonely it can be, you know? So you how go isolated. Go down to Otago University without a crew, and you have to, you're, you have to build a crew when you're like depressed and inept and shy. So this is where you go first from tomorrow? Yeah, so from tomorrow we did two years in Otago. Um, first year in a hall where I passed everything was fine. It was not fine. Let's just mm. put that in parentheses after it was fine. And then uh, my second year and then it was like this is going very wrong. Mm. You know, there's mm. always a a streak of preserve yourself in me which um, is valuable so bolted from there to Christchurch and managed to I think the big turning point for me was like getting a physical hard physical job at a, a maternity hospital laundry and like working from 3pm in the afternoon until often 3am at night um, the majority of that alone, just keeping machines going, moving machines and moving stuff into machines and lifting stuff. I lost like 30 kgs because, you know, I was the unsexy depressed where you got overweight mm. and you hated mm. yourself because of it. And so, I, you know, I worked and worked at this job and then toward the end of the job, it, it was starting to get like... I was reading Infinite Jest sitting out on the, with a cigarette sitting out in the fire escape and all the machines inside had finished their cycles and all the buzzers are going off mm. and it's silent and a, a maternity hospital laundry should never be silent. So all you can hear in there is no machines going just bzzz, and it's like get in here and do your work but no I've got to read this goddamn book. The same thing happened with Catch-22, mm. and it was like this on-fire period in my life. Like, I just thought, 
this is it. This is the thing. I'm doing the right thing. And yet I need this money. I need this money. I've got to... Okay. God damn it, I've got to put the book down. You know, falsified a few work logs mm. during those latter months. I must admit to my foreman. But yeah, that that was a fiery period. And I all through that period, I was like gathering steam. You know, I think I was 23. And I was like, this is... I'm coming up to the time I'm going to write a book. I'm going to write a book. I'm going to write a book. So that was the the period of getting up enough stones, I think. Yeah. When did you become aware of Wellington and Victoria University and the Manhire course mm. as a thing for you to go and do? Right. So... Um, so the the first book, The Lazy Boys, I actually mm. wrote in Christchurch. And I went on what they had at the time was called The Artist's Doll. Mm. So you got $120 a week. And, you know, I, I'm inept with finances, and I still am. But I angled my way into getting that and tried to live. It's just like, well, the most important thing is that I have to write this book. You know, I'll survive somehow. Mm. And then... You know, I would like run out of money three days into after receiving my money. And then, you know, a friend of mine actually said to me, why don't you buy all your food at the start of the week when you receive your money? It's like, oh, that's an amazing idea. Why don't I do that? So, yeah, so it was, at that point, it was very much like very alone, very working on this book, um, Patrick Evans at Canterbury University mm. read in like two thirds an early draft and he encouraged me strongly he said don't pull any of your punches which you know was I think rang the cherries and was a really really strong piece of advice which I took to heart but um, in terms of like where did Bill Manhire and, and Wellington figure in my mind it was very much like look at those privileged intellectuals living in the far north <laughs> in their comfortable houses with their polished wood floors you know that mm. it was a series of cliches of other people's privilege essentially mm. yeah it was lumping in a massive diversity of voices and arguing with them you know as if they were one mm. definitely mm. definitely mm. chip on the shoulder kind of thing and i took that chip on my shoulder into the first workshop and to which I arrived with caterpillar boots and a full suit. <laughs> well, let's go back to Lazy Boys and how, where and how that is left before um, doing the IAML. And, right. And, yeah, I guess what you did to submit for that course. Like, so how much of the book do you write in Christchurch? Uh, so in Christchurch, so we're talking like late nineties. Yeah, what when year you start, was this? this was ninety-eight. Mm. So ninety-eight, I basically, I you're on the outer stole. I separated myself from all the dudes. Yeah, with the toxic behaviours that I was, and I just realised like, life is better when you live with women. So I moved in with women every time, and mm. so I moved in with a second load of women a relationship like my first relationship like a very very serious one had just 
had ended and it was like this is time I'm going to do this book now it's now or never you're old now you're an old old man because I was um 23 or yeah four. it's like too late Ancient. dude yeah get on the bus now you're lost <laughs> and, and so I just I just made these all these preparations and I recognize it myself now like when mm. you you start gearing up and preparing a den or like a like your office you start like putting things in place and I'm much more willful about it now Delillo has this thing about velayity about um moving in the smallest twists and turns of your preoccupations and that you actually have to have acts of will to to do things of seriousness so you know I took that on board and it was like okay I have to establish a place and a desk and work at it but very very unfamiliar with what it might involve and like you know I, I never met anybody who'd written anything ever um so the first thing I did was I went up to Mackenzie country determined to start a book and my parents had a batch in the Mackenzie country and that sounds like quite a class marker now but that's actually in those days mm. it's like you know people in the mm. south had batches you know mm. cribs yeah cribs so at that time it was a crib and so I went up there in the middle of winter and just like stayed there and I was like write write the first pages you know do this work stayed up there on my own for a week and and got started and then it, it took another um another six months for the first draft once I got back you know some very strange behaviors like putting a mirror up in front of the desk and really like just saying you need to sit down and finish something because finishing is everything mm. Mm. your um writing heroes at this point you mentioned reading infinite jest mm. what were you digging in on outside of David Foster Wallace and a backlog of Stephen King yeah well it was it was a weird tension because I'd been when I was 16 um, there was a guy who was really moving hard on my older sister who started being nice to me at school and I was like this is fantastic there are, these prefects are being nice to me and then I just realised oh they just want my sister but anyway, they were 18, I was 16, and there was one particular guy who started making mixtapes for me. And he started making tapes for me. And he, so he gave me stuff like the Pixies, the Wedding Present, Ultra Vivid Scene, mm. turning me on to all this amazing music. And, um, and then he said, you've got to read this book. And it's The Rules of Attraction by mm. Bernstein Ellis. Mm. It's like his least loved book by anybody ever. Isn't it great though? It is kind of great I kind of think it's his second best book right to me like of I haven't read all of them I never read um, Glamorama yeah but I kind of think it's um, Glamorama is the grand disintoxication I kind of think it's um, American Psycho and Rules of Attraction like obviously Less Than Zero is a starting point and because of his age and because of what came from it sure and because of the movie and all of that but I kind of think it's American Psycho and then Rules of Attraction like the mm. other two I, I think 
and I think time will kind of you know we're moving towards that time will sort of prove that yeah I I think there's two major things about Glamorama so I think it's the end of his first person method like the first person method was first person present tense Mm. on the early books was always about conflating it with the real Mm. author Mm. and which was quite a well it was quite a backward looking and also forward looking thing it was like this nod towards like contemporary memoir that like it's really delicious to read but also this backward looking Hemingway thing which he partakes of that same style but then with Glamorama it's like he's writing a first person present tense of an obvious idiot and it's mm. it's so it's this horrible satire sustained over 800 pages and but which contains some of his most beautiful writing so it's it's absolute disaster you know mm, mm. which you almost can't look away from mm. but just horrible mm. but the yeah rules of attraction when you read it when you're 16 17 you're about to go to college mm. you're like this is the most important text i've encountered yeah i bet because i was gonna say i read it when i was probably like 23 you know right. like i read it when i'd been to college was still at university yeah, yeah. it was you're like why wasn't my university was like, yeah well i was still there and i was kind of like i was yeah. maybe 22 23 but it was it sort of lined up in some ways and yeah. then in other ways i was like yeah why wasn't it like this but the writing was just amazing to me yeah, yeah and i'd read i'd read american psycho at that point i'd actually right. read that already okay so i'd read i'd read psycho then um less than zero and then rules of attraction that was the order for me yeah and it's funny isn't it it's the same with albums how you come to something like it totally affects you know it. like i can see you looking going oh yeah I, you, you're mapping how that would mean something to me in well, that, that order totally because changes the author that's right it? like yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah and it's the it's the same with like dylan or van morrison or lou reed or any of those people that have done 40 or 50 albums if you're like blood on the tracks is my first and yeah. then someone else is like oh my first is you know whatever yeah yes yeah. so important yeah and also contemporary contemporaneity is that a word contemporaneousness contemporaneously like the the state of being contemporaneous is yeah. so important yeah like when you i mean even when you're older if you're honest it's still important like what are people doing mm. now mm. beside you alongside you and we're also coming from a pre-internet thing where it's like you didn't like I read American Psycho. I didn't know you'd done other books. How would right. I know? You right. Know? Yeah, going, yeah, yeah. I read that because that was the thing, and it was like I loved that, it's and it that blew me away. And object that, of the moment. That's right. I read it in the time and of the moment when it was released, yeah, and yeah. it was like, oh, it's a banned book. I remember. I actually remember my mum coming into the shop and buying it for me. It was a banned book. It was such a hit, mum. You know, and I was just like, I want to read this, and she's like, that's okay. It's okay, you can read it. You know, I'm you're smart. Mark. Yeah, you're smart. Like, you'll you'll deal with it. That's amazing. Yeah, so that, you know, it's funny that, like, again, that's the same with some music at some points. You're like, if you're pre-internet, you didn't know the order at first. And yeah. so, I, you know, obviously you read the book, you look at the publication date, but I can just remember being at university, being handed less than zero. Oh, that's earlier, and then someone going, "Oh, you've read that? Here's his next book." Right? Like, Fuck, he read, he wrote two books before he wrote. You know, I was just, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, but it, yeah, that's that's just interesting how the narratives change, and then when you explain that to 
certainly people like us, there are certain people that just like, they're interested in that stuff. When and how you discovered something rather than whether you've read it or listened to it or not. Like, I'm always yeah. interested in that. I'm always I mean, I'm just sitting here, like, looking at your record collection. I'm trying to remember, like, I'm trying to think about, like, the way when you're 20 or you're 19 yeah. and cultural artifacts enter your life mm. and the importance they subsequently gather and the luck mm. actually involved around that. Mm. Because I remember, um, I remember being in Unicol, which is a hall of residence in Dunedin, and Radio 1 was their student yeah. radio, their BFM. Yeah. And I remember hearing Animal Nitrate by Sway mm. the very first time. And the very first time knowing that this was absolutely the most important thing that I had heard, the closest, most meaningful thing that I had heard, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. And then, you know, as a mark of the time, getting an audio cassette tape prepped on play record <laughs> and pause, pause really. for days, <laughs> for days on end, waiting for the first chords. Yeah. Yeah, and the first cause it's like jumping across yeah. the room. Yes. Yeah. And my tape deck always played it back slightly faster than the mm. original plays mm. on vinyl or on CD. So it's never quite replicated that you know seminal first experience. Because yeah. I used to play that song. Yeah. Like I used to go like, okay, this is my first year at university. I'm a I'm a shy guy. Mm. And I'm going to now go out into the world. I'm going to go to the student mm. union and get drunk with a whole lot of guys that I barely know. And this is absolutely terrible. And, you know, I should probably try and score, shouldn't I? <laughs> so I'm going to put on Animal Nitrate and that's going to send me out with confidence into the world. And this strategy didn't really pay off, <laughs> but nonetheless, I pursued Didn't mean you didn't try it more than once yeah every yeah. Friday night yeah <laughs> I mean yeah it's funny I mean to prattle on about like pre-internet stuff can be a little bit painful for mm. anyone brought up and it, and for most people who've just moved it's on and, and you and I we have moved on we live our yeah. lives online but it is interesting in terms of discovery of cultural artifacts because now it's at everyone's fingertips and you know I meet people you know 20 years younger than me that tell me about how important an album is from the 70s right because they read about a reissue of it and they're not wrong and I'm amazed that they're interested but I always think about that and go you're so lucky that you were able to grasp that by living your life online and having that information at your fingertips. Yeah, yeah. Like, I don't deserve a medal for working harder for that information, but I can't forget that I worked harder for that information. Yeah, you, can't, you can't forget the <laughs> scarcity. It was like we were yeah. in sort of Soviet Russia, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, that, that's it. I don't, yeah. I, I'm not a survivor who made it, <laughs> but at the same time, I kind of am. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. You know, like, you can't help but, you can't help but place yourself and go, we were at the, you know, the Havelock North Library. Yeah. Had nothing. But what it had was gold, like right. at the time. And well, I had I had kind of an object correlative for the internet, and that was Japan. Mm. So you went to Japan, and they had this place called Tsutaya, and like nowhere else in the world, they rented CDs. Mm. They rented CDs to people, and the CDs were returned in impeccable condition. And so me and a friend of mine, we used to just 
like delve into artists mm. like we were like okay Roxy music so start with Roxy and just go through the albums and then understand the artist it's like album mm. after album after album and talk to the talk to each other about the albums and like let's understand Roxy music what is going on here and you know when you're young and there's like a you haven't lived through any of this and mm. nobody's told you about any of this you know it was like this weird freedom and access you know access is huge when do you go to Japan first so I I finished writing the lazy boys mm. um, you sign it off it's done pretty well, you much. finish it and then you're like what do I do with it yeah um, so you send it to people and you send it to publishers and you look around who published the last book that I picked up kind of thing mm. Um, people communicated by letter and fax in those days so you send letters and faxes to people Mm. but then you're like what the hell do I do with my life and at that point I was like I am the freest most youngest most hungriest person on the block my I'm gonna be fucking amazing Mm. this is amazing what I can do whatever I want now because I'm so free etc etc and I had this friend who was in Japan and but also I was the poorest person as well as having those other qualities and he said come to Japan you can make 250,000 yen a month teaching English and I was like um okay totally I'll do that why not I, I want anything now what did that translate to wow at that time I'm trying to think that it was a lot more money than yeah. I had ever encountered. Yeah. Probably a thousand dollars, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, it can't be that little. Anyway, I, I, I can't remember. It was it was so much. It was money. still yeah yeah. Yeah, it was like. It was obviously a better deal than what you were gonna. There, there was absolutely. I had nothing mm. ahead of me. I had an English degree from Canterbury University. And the artist stole. Yeah. Yeah. And I'd just written a first novel, which I was submitting, so I was like the least employable <laughs> yeah, white yeah. guy in the South Island yeah. of New Zealand. So it was like, go to Japan? Yes, I will. I will do that. So I assembled, I borrowed money, and I assembled the necessary visas, and, and I went to Japan and rocked up there with a bunch of borrowed money, which you needed to get a working visa, hmm. and said... Um, Okay, I better get a job. Essentially, hmm. how long were you there? So the the first period was eighteen months. Hmm. So it was eighteen months of starting from the initial like complete dislocation and this place is you know, bewildering and amazing. And then in those days, like you know, you get jaded so quickly when you're young. But it was like. A lot of, a um, couple of like ill-fated affairs and infatuations and then a sudden realisation that there was absolutely no way I could make any progress in Japan unless, you know, the people I saw making, like, going ahead in their lives. And by that point, the Lazy Boys had been, people had wanted to publish it and wanted to publish it and then said no and then said you need to change the ending and... I had rewritten the whole thing, like minimalized it. Like, um, I don't know if you've read it, but it's it's quite a 
breathless kind of book. It's mm. like there's a lot of run-on sentences, and I thought, okay, I need to make it a minimalist novel. So, I've read the book. I loved it. I right. reviewed it for the Sunday Star Times. Really? Yeah. Yeah. I don't think I, I've ever read that. I reviewed it for the Sunday Star Times <laughs> under Finlay McDonaldson. Finlay, is that his name? Yeah. Finlay, yeah. I think McDonald. McDonald. Finlay yeah. McDonald. Yeah, yeah. Right. And I um, actually wrote to him at that point and said, is this a conflict of interest? I, I do know Carl Shocker. Is this okay? Like, can Did I... Did you know me? Yeah. Can I review... Oh, yeah, because... Yeah, yeah when, it was re- when it was published... 2007. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of yeah. course. So I was like, I do know him. It's so weird for me. Cause but I, because you were out of the country, I was like, I do know him, but is it okay? And I felt very like, you know, I've, I haven't done that with every album I've reviewed in every book, but at that point, I just sort of felt like I should check this. Yeah. I should just sort of check this. And he wrote back and said, oh, this is interesting. Because I hate the guy, but I like the book. Well, he was just like, oh, this is interesting to... No, he was just like, this is interesting. How do you know him? And I said, well, I know him. Like, we're friends. Like, we, we know each other. We've um, had, you know, several interactions with, with this, this, but I know he's living out of the country at the moment. He kicked over a um, house in my house. Yeah, yeah, and these appalling boats. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, my friends wanted to kill him. No, I was just like, but, you know, like, I'm a reviewer and I'm really open to the idea that I'd, I'd be interested in reading his book and seeing what it's like and I'll just write about it and he's like do it that's fine yeah that's totally fine it's, he, I remember his words were something along the lines of New Zealand's a pretty small country we can't avoid sh- you know we can't really shit avoid shit like time. that yeah. um, thank you for for he was actually really good he was like thank you for thinking that this might be a problem that really doesn't sound to me like it is right and I loved that book, and I wrote a positive review of it. Oh, well, and I loved it. I mean, the the natural danger of that is you get a lukewarm review of someone who like really doesn't like a piece of work, and they go like, mm. "Well, because of you know." The book really spoke to me on a level like we were talking about um, rules of attraction and less right. than zero, and just everything you were talking about in your Timaru experience. Like, I read it and went shit I I don't want to say I could write a book like that because that would assume that I had your writing talent but it spoke to me on that level where I went this is something I identify with I haven't quite lived through this exact thing but I've lived through my version of it and mm. my version of it kind of lines up you know <laughs> that was you know my version of it isn't that far off like mm. there's some stuff in my version that is not as bad as this and maybe there's some stuff that's worse you know that was yeah, that yeah. was my memory of reading it and trying to put a review together I was really affected by that book and I've had an interesting experience recommending that book to people since I've had some people that have gone man that book's profound and thank you and I've had some people go I couldn't deal with that. I found that too hard. That's the most disgusting thing you've ever Yeah, around. yeah. <laughs> uh, I don't know what you're on, but I don't get why you like that. But we're jumping ahead there because that book does, that's your first written book, but it's not your first released book. Yeah. So let's go back. So, you, so you're in Japan. Is this when you apply for Wellington or you come back to New Zealand anyway? Like, how does that work? 
Yeah, so I, I'm in Tokyo. Mm. Um, so I, I've gone from being uh, this Puritan ascetic writing a novel, you know, mm. 600, 800 words a day. Mm. This is who I am. You know, when you're 24, you're like, mm. give me identity and I will fulfill it to <laughs> yeah. the utmost. And I'm like, I'll, I'll be that guy. I. I will not drink a single drop before I must be pure for my ass and etc etc and then you're like no I must get absolutely hammered so I buy a three litre cask of chasseur <laughs> yeah so that was that time and then you get to Japan and I was a vegetarian and all kinds of puritanism and citizen going on to get that book made then I went to Japan and you go from suburban Christchurch to you know the biggest one of the biggest metropolises in the world mm. where nobody gives an absolute damn about your values mm. and you witness capitalism on a grand scale especially like well I mean just as a metaphor like meat eating or fish eating and you realise that your individual decisions count for zilch and you're you're thrown on you know you were asked to find resources that you sort of didn't have and you know I got I got very very confused by that experience and very I decided at a certain point so I, I spent the first half of it trying to turn the lazy boys into a minimalist masterpiece like sucking all the life out of it until it was like the bleakest mm. like three word sentence book you'd ever read and then all the publishers who had shown any interest sort of said um no thanks that's all right and then after that it was like okay i'm going to go and i'm going to live this life and i sort of lived that life for a while it was just there was enough money in the pocket there were opportunities around you there was a very very decadent life and it just got more and more decadent until people suddenly had families and then stopped being decadent it's a very strange milieu of being a foreigner in Tokyo you have access to like this is this is why it comes up in the method act this is this quote about apocalypse now he does an interview this beautiful interview Francis Ford Coppola does mm. and he's been um, translated into French at the same time. I remember asking Katie for a translation to get it right. You know, he says, we were in the jungle. We had too much money. We had too much time. And little by little, we went insane. And that's just exactly like what Japan was. Mm. People just went crazy. Mm. And they, they, they started doing things that they wouldn't have done 18 months ago, 6 months ago. And because there were no rules, there were, it was just like, you can make yourself up. And it, it kind of seems glib now, but when you're living it, it's quite, it seems, to me, it seems profound in terms of history. And so that was why I, I tried to link it back to like, uh, war crimes and, you know, right on back to, you know, Japan's isolationism. And when there was a period in Japan's history that only let like, a limited number of Dutch people live on an artificial island and that was the only access with the Western world or, or even the further Eastern world, like Chinese, you know, people come over in boats and be, you know, 
summarily executed. It's like 250 years of isolationism. And it was like, the whole isolationism, what foreigners do when they're isolated in a country, it all became this big metaphor. And when you're like 26, you see grand metaphors and everything. Mm -mm. Yeah. Mm. So it became this big Pinchonian kind of, like, I can see all the systems in the world and I must communicate them to you over 250 thousand words <laughs> listen to me so you get out of japan to come back to wellington or you get out of japan to get out of japan which is it oh not to come back to wellington but it's like where else am i going to go yeah, what am i going to do yeah what am i going to do like i've i've amassed literally i can twelve thousand dollars i've mm. saved twelve thousand dollars mm. what am i going to do with it i need to write a book so and you've amassed $12,000 when that actually means... I suppose that means quite a lot. Quite a lot then, I would imagine. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Like, Looking back, it's quite yeah. an achievement. Actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's more than I've ever done in my life, <laughs> by the way. Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. No, that, that's actually quite amazing. Yeah. It's amazing how fast I chewed through it. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I... Yeah, and I think it's mostly Brian's influence there. Mm. Ryan's, Ryan's mm. a really this is Ryan Skelton he's a filmmaker friend of mine who's always been my model for how to like live independently and alone mm. and I used to like I moved in with him when I moved to Japan and I was like here is a human male who mm. is living alone in an apartment in an apparently functional life what does he do and I just copied all his shit <laughs> you know how he cooks and mm. pays bills mm. and stuff it's like all news to me mm. yeah so Ryan's a faithful friend and influence but um yeah so I, I saved like he saved because I knew I was coming back to write a book and I I knew it was going to be a big book and in, in a large part a response my response to um like Catch 22 and Infinite Jest and mm those big books it was those like, big profound books those yeah. big things that had a big impact on so many people yeah and even though you know that had a big impact on you but you knew that had a big impact on lo- you know generations of people when well, was, well for Jess not so much I mean that you'd have been reading that pretty fresh but for me it was like the lazy boys had been rejected yeah and so I was sitting with this thing <laughs> what am I going to do my book hasn't been published I'll go bigger this well, is the thing I love about your story. Oh, really? I'll just go bigger. <laughs> like, well, that was, what's, what's the other response? What is the other response? I'll quit, right? I'll stop. I'll, I'll stop. They don't like my shit. They don't care about me. No, I'm, no. I'm good and no one thinks it, so I'll just fuck off. And that is the other response. That's what people do. But nobody knows any of those people. because That's right. They don't what do they go and do? They go and do noble jobs, jobs that is fine, but they live with a resentment that their thing didn't work out so you didn't want to be one of those people well, I'll go bigger and better you, you get better or you get better mm. that idea I mean I was it was yeah it was a it was a very big choice to make and you know you're still young and you have choices and options and you have time and energy and it was I had been bitterly disappointed but that is the absolute response to bitter disappointment is to come back twice as hard 
And I always, I think, for the first time, I put that in a character and Elizabeth Taylor in a mistake. It's mm. like, you know, people say no, you double down. Mm. Double down, motherfucker, double mm. down. You know, I come back at you twice as hard, twice as smart. And to actually put that in a character, I've not often done that before because they've always been more about flaws and strengths. Um, like, I'll give them ostensible strengths, but. Mm. won't really explore their being being powerful mm. you know and I'm actually more and more interested in people being powerful and and that it's actually not an easier road mm. yeah so let's talk about your experience um, when you come to Wellington and do the IIML you come here with Having been in Japan, a suit and a pair you, of caterpillar boots. That's what you have. You haven't been to Wellington in your life. No. No. And you, how do you, how do you apply for the IIML? What have you got in your, you know, what do you think you've got, and what do you apply mm. with? Well, at that time, um, you, you sent a, a writing sample and an application letter. And I actually asked Bill Manhire himself, mm. Mm. who was there, if I could meet him. And so I went up to the English department and I went to his, his weird little office, which mm. was not mm. in the, you know, the mm. Glen Schaefer Bill Manhire house of its no, no. <clears throat> And it was just wonderful. Like, it was, it was... What did you know of him? All I knew was that he was... He was a kind of this calm at the storm of all the success that I kind of wanted to be part of, part involved. of, or touched by. Yeah, know? yeah, yeah. Involved. I, I envied all the, these mm. people, their exposure mm. and their names and lights, definitely. And there was this calm person at the heart of it, and I think it's a kind of amazing that he managed to. to um, to keep that, that it didn't get feverish around him. Although, he never um, lost that. That's right. He never lost that. Yeah. So I, you know, I visited him and very much with a, you know, a twenty-six-year-old young white man's chip on his shoulder, like, I really want something from you, but who are you to judge me, kind of thing. Mm. And. He was very calm with me, like, straight away, and I think very gentle. And I showed, in the application, which was a separate procedure, you know, I showed pieces of the Lazy Boys that I was proud of, which I thought were writerly, or mm. something like that. And, you know... It worked. Chose me for the MA, so... Yeah. And that was like, okay now this gives me the time to write this thing I want to write a really really big book because this first one that's done and it was also about the first one being uh, a first person voice very limited and it was like now I want to do something super polyphonic huge like Pinchonian like I want this to be a grand narrative of Japan and foreign invasion and it's going to go into history and it's going mm. to do all this shit. I don't know how it's going to do it. 
So I pitched it to them as, this is going to be three interlinked novellas. <laughs> but they bought it, anyway. So you go and meet Bill, and you... What are your thoughts around that? Well, I had an enormous chip on my shoulder. Yeah, and you'd referenced that earlier. You yeah, were thinking so I, I, like, I'd read... I'd read yeah. Like, I, I've read... I won't say several, but I'd read writers from... So I, ha- I yeah. had a vision in my mind. Of, um, you knew what the course was allegedly doing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. I had yeah. I had a kind of caricature view <laughs> yeah, yeah. in my head. And, Which a lot of people had. And also I had, I had defeat. I had been mm. frustrated. I had been... Um, You'd been turned... Turned down. Down, turned yeah. off. Not by the co- course itself, but by... Um, yeah, yeah, but by the idea of... A failure of sorts, like you'd been told no. Yeah, and exactly, and I and I felt like like being from the south and being, um, you know, being sub, being you know, infra infra dig, as as um, someone used to say, like you you felt it was kind of a, like a working class rage in in a way, like I'm I'm meeting another class of people. Mm. And, and how will I be viewed and how will I behave and will, mm. I, will I vomit on the rug kind of thing. <laughs> um, so, you know, you try to, you try to like move into this new social class is what it kind of feels like. And, you know, Bill, Bill was kind and he was gentle and um, I sent my application in. So there was a meeting with him and in this like room which was like dark and filled with books everywhere and he was just he just seemed kind of interested in me like like vaguely interested and in like that seems to be his whole mode like throughout mm, my mm. actual like producing mm. you know the first half of the method act is vaguely interested which was <laughs> you know it was a remarkable effects that you actually get from that mode um so I put the, the subtext is if you can get bill manhire Vaguely, really interested. vaguely interested in your work you're doing well yeah and really yeah. interested you've you should it. strive right. for really interesting yeah that's yeah, right yeah. like yeah yeah what does that look like nobody's yeah. ever seen that yeah 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 so um so i got in and then i had to like organize a life and you know find a room a hundred dollar a week room and get ready for what, what i thought was going to be probably a five hundred thousand or a million word novel how are you going to sustain this? Like, what did you have? The savings from Japan? Yeah, I had this. I had this twelve grand. Twelve grand. Yeah, Rockefeller. Which was like, yeah, I was <laughs> yeah. fucking rich. Yeah, amazing. Yeah. yeah. And and I didn't care. Mm. I was like, oh, I'll find the way. Yeah. Yeah. Whatever. Yeah. Yeah. So and I ended up going to massive debt with my landlord. And, yeah. Yeah. And were you the only? guy in the course that year or one of two that's right which seems to be a yes. fairly frequent thing two yeah i'm sure males to the, yeah yeah because i think like it's taken <clears throat> me actually until this year to meet every single person from your year of that course but i knew quite because i'd never met jackie until your book launch for a mistake oh right yeah yeah but I'd met everyone else along the way yeah 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 but i knew the story that and it's it is quite common but yeah, you were the only guy yeah. in the course. And back then it was poets and novelists right. and 
Gabe was doing theatre stuff. Yeah, she was writing a play. Yeah, so now it's a little bit more compartmentalised. Yeah. It's a little bit more, there's two streams. Yeah. But back then it was just like, creative writers come in, if you're writing a novel or a bunch of short stories or a play or poetry, we want to hear from you. Yeah. And Anna, who's your wife, was writing poetry at that time. She's, that's right. She published that and then published a novel. Um, but she was a poet in her time in that course. That's right. Yeah. It, it was a funny year because, um, you know, it, it developed a reputation, this course, but it was also the first year that was funded by this um, <coughs> Las Vegas oh, right. millionaire. So, Glenn Schaefer. Yeah, so this was... Uh, oh, was that the first year of kerfuffle? Yeah, so he okay. had funneled a whole lot of money into the course, and you know we had new digs, and um, the prime minister at the time um, opened a big ceremony, and I actually went up like slightly tiddly and introduced myself to this Vegas millionaire slash billionaire who had mm. a couple of bodyguards, and it was all very surreal, and I just felt like. Yeah, gosh, the arts are being really looked after in New Zealand. Yeah, I, I remember actually, and like I've had Bill sitting where you're sitting for the podcast, yeah. which I wonder, did he sit here? Yeah, of course, yeah, he yeah. sat right where you sat. Classic. And um, and it took a while to get him. Like I took a while for me to muster the courage to ask him, mm. and then I did, and then I let him down for a, for a while, almost up to a year, and then he came back, and we did it. And I remembered as soon as he sat down, I said, I came and talked to you in your office at the IIML. And he remembered you, it. And he was like, I'm still waiting to see the story. And I was like, <laughs> shit, I wrote it. I'm sure I wrote it. And I realised after he left, well, we did write it, but I don't think that actual issue ever made it. You know, and he was his memory was incredible, and yeah, yeah. you know, and I've I'd met him a few times along along the time since then, but that was my first ever meeting of him, and it was just, yeah, and I knew who he was, everything. I knew who he was. I'd read his books, I'd read his guide, you know, his guides, like the stuff that had come out through the IOML, his creative writing stuff. But I, I think, like talking to Bill for this podcast is the most intimidated I've ever been. Yeah, yeah. How do you interview him? It's like interviewing a mountain. Yeah, well, that's that's beautifully put. Yeah, I mean, you don't know what he's going to say or how he's going to respond. Um, he's what did Steve Braun used to say about him. He's he's the Zen god. Or something. Mm. Um, oh, I just thought like, yeah, he's he's answered everything I'm going to ask him. He's and he's been asked it better than I will ask him, and he'll you know like all of that. And I won't get to the points that. And I listened back to him and went, we did okay, like, but he started reading, you know, I asked him to read a few poems, mm. and he read stuff, and it was sort of like, read Wingatui, and it was sort of like asking Paul McCartney to just play, you know, Hey Jude, or, you know, like, whatever, like, it yeah, was, he'll if, do it. Which, he, which, of course, he'd be more willing, I think, if anything, or like, <laughs> you know, he's more used to being asked, but it, but it felt like that to me, it was like, I'm sitting there asking one of the greats to do their greatest hits. The thing and is, he did um, it, you know, like, he, of course he did it. The but. thing with Bill is he can actually just talk to you and listen to you, and then you can ask him, will you read that poem, Bill? And he'll say, yes, yes, of course I will. Mm. 
and then he'll take a breath and then he'll just destroy you mm. he'll just wreck you mm. and break your heart and and then return back to what you were discussing earlier you know it's, it's that's a, exactly my experience of spending two hours sitting yeah. with him where you're sitting like it yeah. was amazing yeah. of course it was amazing but it really was like shit I'm not you know it was Wayne's world I'm not worthy you know like it was that too like it yeah. was just like we're not worthy so you go into the class what feeling of that did you have going into the class well um so it was, it was I mean an indicative episode is me walking up in my caterpillars and suit <laughs> and someone driving past me on Salamanca Drive and giving me a thumbs up and it's like and I was like fuck you guys like I'm I'm going in here to do a job I've got a job and my job is to be the biggest novel a polyphonic novel about Japan and etc etc it's like that that Valetti Don DeLillo thing that I was Mm. talking about it's like Mm. setting yourself these huge impossible goals and and being being ridiculous about stuff and it's really important like when when you're that age if you don't if you don't say like when you're 20 Six twenty-seven. I'm going to do the most insane, most important thing. Then, you know, is it really important that we hear from you? Um, so that was my goal, and you know, if you aim high, you fail in a fairly high way. So. I, I still think it was a I, I think it was an important thing to do for me and I think I I failed at that goal but I think the the effort actually it, it gave due respect to the experience that I was trying to reflect like gave due respect to what Japan did to me what Japan mm. felt for me which you know really kicked my ass it actually really kicked my ass like left me on the edge of you know I thought I was I'd gotten there strong and pure and I, I was gonna make it and did a number on me morally in terms of you know what I what I expected from myself and what I should do and what I do do in, in life and I wanted to do a novel that reflected all that and you know, did historical stuff and did reflected the, my reading up until then, like which was Wallace and Pinchon and Joseph Haller, and, you know, all those those big encyclopedic Americans. You know, so I really wanted to argue with that tradition, but from New Zealand, and you know, I did my best and I kind of failed at it, but you know, I produced something. And some of that stuff, what I, what I was talking about, I think I was misquoted on this, but the idea of like really, really shooting for something and then finding envelopes or edges of stuff that you never thought you were capable of pushing. And just through like sheer like being present and turning up and turning up and turning up, actually pushing envelopes of stuff. Mm stuff personal to you mm, really mm. more than more than like going like I really want to do this more than Brian Eno did it you know, more like I have not been capable of doing this mm. 
I sh I need to do that more. Get further, get deeper. Um, that that was the sense of it for me. Like I left that process of writing that big failure of a novel, going like, well, I touched parts of myself I didn't think I was going to touch. I really got, I really did things that I'm really fucking proud of, and I really got out of there. Like I amazed myself. That's incredible. Yeah, you know, you're calling These it kind a, of emotions. You're calling it a big failure of a novel. Yeah. Why was it a failure? You failed to um, finish it in the year that you were supposed to finish no, no, it. No, not that. You don't. I know you don't mean that, but I'm yeah, just yeah. saying, like, in theory, you go into the course to put together a manuscript. But you had a, as you as people are hearing, you had a much more. Uh, you had a much more you know you were painting on a bigger canvas you had a bigger idea than what the a year in a class could hold like so you end up submitting a hundred thousand plus words couple of hundred thousand words what not quite that but you end up like putting together as much as you can with a note saying there's more to come basically <laughs> but yeah. I know you're not talking about that as being the failure but yeah. that's what you do in that in that zone, in that like, context. In that context. Yeah, yeah. Like that's how you finish the year. Like this is what I've got so far, and there's more to come. And here's a note to explain. Yeah. Now, how is that received? Well, you don't know. But yeah. What What you do know is during the year, you're you're sitting there across from people like Paula Morris. Now she's the one person in your class I've never met. Right. No, but I know her work and I've seen her speak and I know what she does and she seems to be a, a, an incredible force. But actually, she's Absolutely. the one person I haven't met. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and you had an amazing year. Yeah. Well, yeah. Amazing year. Like, Everyone in that is published. Anna, Jackie Davis. Yeah. Um, Rachel King. Paula Morris. Rachel King. This just every everybody did something we had the, like the highest publication rate yeah and quite quickly in a lot of yeah, cases yeah, like, yeah. yeah yeah and it was it was insane and yeah. they were just like a brilliant group and it was it was clear Susan Pierce um, mm. but it was like I I really had a sense of what the bigger picture was going to look like like I was going to feel like I'll put it that way because mm. I, I didn't know if I could execute it. So I was showing people like fragments, like, you know, like, to be literal, 5,000 word episodes of someone in a hotel room mucking around and, you know, having casual sex with somebody and then there being a bayonet under the bed. And people are like, um, you know, where are you sort of going with this? And <laughs> yeah. I'm like, well, you have to, you know, you have to... <laughs> Understand you have to read the whole thing in the context of actually uh, there's more to come 500,000 yeah. word novel which I don't know how to write and so you, you write on bravado a lot of the way and I wrote on bravado and um, and but people were kind of sympathetic to it mm. so the idea that, that you know I don't think we want to engage with that whole idea that it's a, a conveyor belt or anything like that but mm. um, you know I think You, there's the luck of the class like if you get the right people it, those touchy want of things you know, there, there, there's luck in that but the well idea what happened to you in that class like I mean apart from meeting your 
wife my wife yeah yeah and you know but I mean as a writer what happened to you in that class like what did you walk away with because you did not walk away with a finished novel right and no, you, no, had, you really, had yeah you had I'm a failed really novel in the sense that you had a novel that at that yeah. point didn't so what did you walk away with so when I went in there it was very much like do you know I'm I'm moving an upright finger backward and mm. forward right mm. now. Mm. I have just completed a manuscript, and a lot of you guys won't have completed a manuscript. Mm. And I'm coming in here with a vision of Japan that I'm going to put down on paper that a lot of you guys won't. This is my first day. Mm. You know, mm. This is the kind of mentality. Very super defensive because I've like literally probably never met another writer ever. So super defensive, super chip on my shoulder. Um, so I go in there, and then Bill says, you have to do these exercises. Write an exercise that involves these three or four constraints. You know, deliver a piece of writing. In the meantime, you have to be writing your other main project, which we don't know anything about. Mm. So I'm like, okay, the main project is the most important thing. I'm going to devote all my time and attention to this. And then at the last minute, I'll do this requirement, you know, mm. in that ridiculous way. So I'm reading a lot about you know, the material of the method actors, which is like um, decadence and historical war crimes and reading deeply in this stuff. And and then they're like, oh, I got to do this an exercise and like defend it who cares about this shit you know this this defensive thing like the absence of play like I should have just treated it as like you know what a great mm. what a great way to learn get to know each other kind of thing <laughs> so all my exercises were quite defensive <laughs> technical mm. things you know mm. it was like um no I did a technically strong thing which you can't argue with because <laughs> Um, and then I realized going through that process was that I was about to show them stuff that I'd actually written for my project that I really cared about, which in the background I'm writing, which they are going to see about May of the year, I guess, mm. May or June. Like soon they're going to see the stuff that I care deeply about. So I can't hide anymore. I'm doing these exercises in slightly slightly arch, ironic way or whatever. Mm. Trying to be clever or Mm. hide or whatever. Then I realise, like, that shit's over with. I'm actually going to show them something which I actually really care deeply about. And it's like, at that point, you sort of go, well, either at this point you start hiding better or you start going, I'm going to learn from you you know and it was a really really scary moment and a humbling moment and something I've actually drawn on heaps since like like when you just go and I think I kind of first had that moment it probably seems quite facile but probably first had that moment in Japan with Ryan it's just like he knows way more about this shit than I do I'm going to just shut the fuck up and I'm going to listen closely to him and I want to defer him in these matters. Mm. You know, and with, with these other readers, it was like, just stop and listen and learn. 
stopping such a yeah i wonder i've you know? i mean i've talked to as i say a few people for the podcast and i know others that have been through the iml and i always think like at what point do you go at what point do you go fuck these other people might know at least as much as me <laughs> they might know more it's you incredible. know like the possibilities you know because you're in there and you you kind of got to flex your muscle you kind of got to be like this is why i'm here this is mm. the shit I've got. Yeah. But at the same time, you're like, we're all in this together. We're all here to learn. Like, I speak only for my class. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Of course. So, and and you pretty soon you know who to pay attention to mm-hmm. and who not to. Yeah, there's got to, like anything, like there's yeah. got to be some people that really know. Someone's going to say, you know, some watered down stuff about yeah. stuff, which is fine, but useless. Mm. And someone else is going to say, you know, that's false. Hmm. that's fake that's the wrong word that's lazy and it's going to really really sting and that's the person you're going to pay attention to and that's the moment you're going to pay attention to and when did that first happen for you that had in that class that had an impact well uh, innumerable times but um there's a massive argument about... So I'd just broken up a big relationship that at the end of Japan and I had come back to New Zealand sort of leaving that relationship behind. So I wrote an episode which for me was deeply sort of embedded in that relationship. But part of this whole world of the method actors which was you know, supposed to be quite a... Um, quite an anime world in a way it was like mm, it was mm. quite a it had it was always like a new romantic world like it was about primary colours and primary emotions and mm. and people were in love and were thwarted in love and it was that kind of world and I decided it would be like that and I you know I wrote this episode about a person being betrayed and broken up and we had these like massive argument about the use of the word panties and I was like in in this world we use the word panties and you can argue about it and Katie is in the next room she's still arguing with me about the use of the word <laughs> panties and it's like no this is the word panties and I will fucking double down and double down on it <laughs> so we went through hell on that like 15 minutes of argument like on this particular issue but you know that that world I mean that's a really interesting thing is that like a a male writer being confronted with nine different kinds of knowledges of being a woman and reading every different kind of book that you can imagine Nine people who wear panties or by any other name, <laughs> you know. More like more like the the libraries <laughs> that each of those nine people bring yeah. to you, yeah, and want to hammer you with, yeah, and say like, why, <laughs> why motherfucker, why, yeah, you know, justify yourself, yeah, and you go like, you know, you're either humbled and you you go okay, okay, I don't know. And, and you figure it out. Or you fight your way or, out. Or you fight your ground because it's important <laughs> enough. 
and when do you know? And, like, uh, when do you know? I, I keep saying this, but it was a non-smoking environment. Yeah, yeah. Can, can I just put that up? Yeah. And this is this is in every third or fourth line. Yeah. It was it was pretty tough, but they were engaged and so engaged, and I'm so grateful for that. So, what happens at the? How does that year end up for you? Like, you. It was a bit of an anti-climax. Yeah, so you can't quite finish the book. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So you have to submit, this is what I've done and this is where I think it's going. What did that mean? Like, how did that... How was that received? Yeah, I had to kind of come to terms with that. And right, as you say, that um, two-page document saying, oh, and... (laughs) By the way, there's more. The ending's ending's like this, and it's fantastic. (laughs) Don't worry. (laughs) So it was 80,000 words I submitted of... 200,000 went total yeah which I didn't know was going to be 200,000 yeah but you knew it was going to be more I knew it was much much bigger so you write a sort of a justificatory Mm. document and you kind of pull it out of your ass really and you know I don't know you take chances what were the notes what came back so Charlotte Grimshaw was reading for Mm. me and you know she's pretty good mmm and I remember her saying, I had absolutely no interest in Japan prior to this reading, prior to reading this novel. <laughs> um, so I think everybody's disposed to, like, you know, if you show some talent, they're mm. not going to penalise you for mm. not completing the loop, as it were. You know, if the thing is obviously bigger, and it obviously has some kind of design for being bigger, you know, it's just sad if it doesn't get finished. Mm. But they're not going to penalise you. Now, what happens with um, this book? Like, I've never read it, but mm. I have a copy on my shelf. I, I one day want to get to it, but it's a mammoth book. I sort of know the story, but what happens? Like, you finish the IML, you mm. don't finish the script, you go away and finish it, obviously. Yeah. So we. Um, so, the first year you're in this course second and second and a half year it was just me um went pretty nuts mm. like um it was and so I met you at some point during this yeah yeah so not a great introduction probably you know you know vice versa yeah because well, I don't know what I was doing at that point but I, I do remember one thing I bristled at was when you were talking about like your your understanding of who you thought these people were I do remember I already knew Katie and I remember meeting Katie in a bar and meeting you and Anna and I think Gabe there was certainly someone else from your class and I remember going in going oh these guys are all the entitled writers yeah yeah you know yeah and I can remember thinking that these guys are all like they all think they're great yeah and I had worked really hard at that point to um, to get myself into the newspaper which is what I wanted to do yeah and I had submitted to a couple of creative writing courses and not got in and I had fought my way into the paper and I'd just been published and I remember thinking well what's so great about them like they're all they're all writers in theory I'm a writer in practice because I'm getting published yeah but I'd only just got I'm talking like two that's art- awesome I'm talking like one or two articles yeah but I can just remember the, my first meeting with you was 
you know, why are you better than me? Like, yeah, yeah. you know, like there was that that fisty cuff kind this of like. It. It's like writing is a competitive. Yeah, that sport. competitive thing. That's right. I just yeah. remember going, well, you might be better than me, but have you achieved more? And it's yeah. like, you know, who who's to measure that? And what is the measurement? And why does the measurement matter? And I wasn't angry at you personally if anything i was probably angry at myself is always the way mm. but it wasn't even that it was just like why is there this combative you know but there's something like there's some that's, that's just how we get better yeah like we look around yeah we look around and we try to like surpass yeah and do better learn and do better yeah it's fine it's, a, it's like a natural thing. It's it's mm. it's all good. Mm, mm. You know? But I remember meeting you then, and I, and, you know, and I, I knew that you were working on a pretty audacious sort of project. So you go away, you go... I had that. no sense of that. So my sense yeah. of the world at that time... Was You're locked in your own world. I'm like, work six days a week. Like, stay up till 4 a.m. Mm. Um, drink wine and eat... Um, those dried noodles yeah. until 4 a.m. and then it's like it's starting to get light this is ridiculous get into bed you know maintain a semblance of sanity and then on the weekend go out and on the weekend I'd go out and I'd dress as Willard from Apocalypse Now <laughs> mm. and I'd be wearing like a, a military jacket with a um, with a band-aid under my left eye and I would just go out into the world mm. you know like it was like um what we do in the shadows it was mm. like emerging out into the world and trying to like negotiate the real world well yeah so when does this become like you know something more than going slightly mad like when do you like pull out of that so you're finishing method actors right. doing this yeah so um you've got quite a few more words to write so at a certain point i i could sort of i you have the territory in your mind. You know mm. that this is what I'm working toward the end. And um, I think this is a um, it's a kind of Thomas Harris thing I think about. He he talks about serial killers and he says, you know, how do we begin to covet? We begin to covet by what we see every day. And you know what I coveted was to be published and to be a published writer mm. and what I saw was you know VUP and Fergus Berriman and I was like this big novel I want to be published and my first drives with the novel were very much about um, you know I want this to be published by someone like Little Brown or um, Nolf or I want it to be a huge American novel and I want it to go absolutely through the UK and you know, mm. into translation. I, mean, I just want to be, I want to be big and famous. You'd read Infinite Jest, you'd seen the, yeah, you know, and, and you I'd read Catch-22, yeah. translated into 7,000 You didn't think languages. you were better than these people, but you thought I wanted, you I wanted had, to fight with them. You wanted to mingle with them and fight with them. You yeah. thought your words yeah. preserved a chance to mingle with theirs. Yes. In people's minds. Yeah. 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 I, I wanted, I wanted to be good. Mm. and those were your markers those are high markers but those were your markers of good yeah yeah. and and all your listeners will be saying well motherfucker you're not as good as Joseph Helen well it's like yeah Um, 
But God damn it. I really want to. As you say, be. what's the alternative to yeah. be not as good as them? Well, lots of people can do that. There's that other line. What is it about? Um, Joseph Heller says about Catch 22. Everybody says, like, all his subsequent works were um, not as good as Catch 22. And he's like, well, nothing else is. Hmm. Yeah. Mm. Anyway. Yeah, I mean, I remember talking to the first time I met Phil Judd and I recorded a conversation with him for this podcast, he said a lot of people love pointing out that I'm a one-hit wonder because I wrote Counting the Beat. And I say, well, like, you know, what about all the no-hit wonders? You know, it's better to be a one-hit wonder than a... Right. You know, that that's also true, right? Like, yeah. like just getting runs on the board... Is fucking amazing in this world. Like, yeah. how many people have written a song better than Counting the Beat? Like, yeah. there are a few, but how many have tried and failed? It's, it's way dark, more. Like, it's quite a dark story, though. Yeah, but you know, like, like, what's you know, why do we mock one hit wonders when there are so many no hit wonders? Is what he's saying. Like, yeah. Well, I think in that situation, it's like anybody who knows anything realizes it's, it's not a one-hit wonder situation. That's right. That's so that. That's the other thing he's saying. Infinitely complex like, thing going on. Sure. Yeah. So you get the words together. You get the book done. When is a book like that done? You know, like when do you? Yeah. It's a so, multi-narrative, so... multi-landscape, and multi. You know, it's a. It moves across time zones places it's multi-narrative yeah so I, I submitted it to a, a local publisher and um and they got a readers report which said you know this author does not know how readers <laughs> progress through texts yeah and um we're not interested and I had a meeting and it was it was not a positive meeting and, and then I what it reminded me of was like the original goals and the original goals were like you know you don't what you've done has been what you've got is provide a capture you you are looking around yourself you know what are the immediate what do you covet you covet what you see every day you need to covet more motherfucker mm. you know you need to if you did this thing intending to be big then you should think big so and I started trying to find out how do you, how do you get a New York agent? And yeah, how does, how does yeah. someone get that? How do you get an American publisher? How do you get a New York agent? How do you be successful? So, I started trying to find out. That's Google, that. how do you get? Literally, yeah. And that's what you did. Yeah. And what happened? Well, I found a website <laughs> which had the information. So, so you start sending off. So I pitched New York agents um, for a while until one said yes, and then um, he was great, and then he sent the book out to publishers until one said yes. And this seems straightforward, but it's not. Well, it takes time, but it, you know, <laughs> once it's you know. out of your hands, it, it yeah. kind of is straightforward. But like what you are, you, kind of just what are like, you doing in the interim? Like, well, what are just, you doing? You're just trying to fucking earn a buck and, yeah. like, pay the bills and yeah. hoping, you know, because it's all unprecedented. Mm, mm. It's all, like, I always talk about 
with the method actors. It was a fairy tale because. So where are you when you hear that there's some actual interest in it? In terms of the agent or the publisher, because they're quite big. You know, they're quite big watershed moments actually. Well, what are both? So really, the best one is the is the publisher moment. Mm-hmm. So in between, like getting an agent. So the agent says, "Yes, I'm." I'm the agent says, "I would love to represent you." Yeah. Like, and so you're like, "That's, that's great. Amazing. That's cool. Like, that's this amazing. guy's gonna. Yeah. This guy's gonna make me take over um, everything. You know, a household name. He's gonna. Do you think that, or do you just think, well, this guy's working for me? Well, you. You know what do you? Th- but what do you think in that first instance? It rapidly becomes quite individualized. Mm-hmm. Like everybody thinks, like, yeah, having an agent that's supposed to be amazing and then mm. you this person says I want to represent this book and you google this person and you go like well how exactly successful are you mm. kind of thing mm. yeah yeah the, these are mm. Darwinian instincts I think <laughs> mm. anyway so he this this person is obviously high quality and then but in the time it took for him to pitch a whole lot of people and for them to variously say no mm. you know I had moved from New Zealand to Japan and I was living in Japan and I'd gone through what like what had sent you back there yeah I went back to Japan just because you know I I was with Anna and I just said like Japan's the most amazing place like writing the book had put me back in love with Japan and mm. you know we could have this amazing experience and you know it'd be so easy for come us. with me yeah Let yeah come with me I've been let's, there let's do it together let's go so we went there together and um really at the day that I was told that Schumacher and Horde aka Counterpoint wanted to publish the book I had literally taught English to some children by making them do, like, go through between my legs and shout out the letters of the alphabet. And I was really quite dispirited by my progress as a teacher of English as a second language in Japan. And the future it held for me. And when I say dispirited, I was like, this is absolutely more than I'm fucking willing to put up with Mm. and then you just get an email and then it's modest mouse float on you know (laughs) float on it was was like I remember it vividly walking through Omiya station which is just sort of south of uh, north of Tokyo it's a really big station and just walking through there with my headphones on and that was the real, that was the moment, that was when I, like, thousands of Japanese people did absolutely having done the worst day of work of my life. And all this lights and just this beautiful music, positive music. And it's all going to be alright, Carl. And, um, how much was it okay? And how... You know, how did you feel in that next iteration and how long did that take? And when did that go, wow, I need to do something else? The absolute most important and key thing for me was that 
what I was talking about before, like the sense of the actual work mm. of having like, like I, I found things in it, which I don't think I've found in any other book before or since. Like I, I found things in it which I didn't ever, ever think I was going to. Like I just, I just got, look, I, I know it's limitations and I know every reference that I've drawn mm. on for that book and I know how small it is ostensibly but for me at that time the expansion of myself like that I actually learned stuff mm. and got better at stuff and I got you know some stuff was surprised myself I didn't know I had that you know you know stuff mm. like those feelings mm. that is what carried me through everything after it wasn't about like somebody externally and I remember being like dude be careful I remember having a dream about being published mm. like a dream about people publishing you and it was like a like warning Kafka-esque yeah it was like people putting you mm. out there and it's mm. like a passive thing mm. and it's like nothing about this process should be passive it's about it's a, actually a really pure thing about you and your engagement with your own psyche and your own and art and what you produce. I'm being really fast out here. I'm sorry. I just want to be like really cautious about these stories of um, work and publication and success, mm. you know, and what those are because they ain't straightforward. And yet also the stories that every body hears when they're coming up about I say oh man you know focus on the work don't focus on getting published and all that um, that's equally as kind of facile in its own way mm. it it was a really the thing what I want to say from my experience is that the thing the best time in my life was the six months following the hard work of the method actors which was you know a year of that was entirely supported and looked after by other people you know, you know there were all these writers who said you know interesting go ahead that's fantastic interesting oh i don't like what you said there don't use the word panties you know <laughs> and then a year and a half of like nobody ever saying anything mm. do stuff but nonetheless, that's a pretty supported process, right? That's, mm. that's, that's pretty cushy. But nonetheless, that was hard work for me because I had nothing, virtually nothing published and I was committing to like a huge project and I was giving my all to that big, big project. And I don't want to be like, try and be inspirational, but like you fucking gamble on yourself you fucking gamble on yourself and you gamble 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 and double down and find parts of yourself no matter what happens it's like you get stronger it's, it's pretty well, extraordinary you have happiness in your life because you have got together with Anna who you meet in your master's year and you you hold a bit of a candle for her like you approach her and she knocks you back like she says I've got a partner mm. I have a relationship something's happening like there's a guy in Auckland I'm in Wellington and you yeah. you get knocked back 
So then you, she comes back and says, that's over. I'm, you know, I'll, whatever. You guys get together at, at the end of that. Like she works out that she wants to end a relationship and then start one with you. It's all above board. But that's obviously the source of huge happiness to you. It's clearly worked out okay because you, <laughs> you know, you end up getting married, having Sorry, a couple well, of kids. What was the what question? I'm, the question is like, there must be like a source of huge happiness in your personal life around this, outside of the fact that you've been picked up by an agent and published is that you have a partner, you have someone in your life that yeah. you have and I guess what I'm getting at and I have some inside knowledge on this but you've worked to get this partner, like this is someone who's come into your life and you've gone wow, you're like amazing you are a great reader of my work, you are a person who writes as well, you get me rah rah rah, we, we have this you know, we have this in common, in fact, you know, like, um, but so you've got that in your life. But where is the joy in this book coming out? Like, is it trepidatious and what the fuck's happening? Or is it like all guns ho, like, man, life's good? Um, I feel like the question kind of changed halfway through the question. It totally did. It totally <laughs> did. I'm giving you talking points. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. No, um, so I think the question is you have kind of got your life sorted out. Things are kind of going okay. Mm, Why the fuck are you such an anxious <laughs> motherfucker? That could be one reading of it. It's It's not even that. It's just like how is this all going for you? Like, I'm just filling right. in some blanks yeah, and yeah, seeing okay. it. Like, I'm going... No, 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 that's a good question. You know? Yeah. You've worked hard for both things, actually. Gosh, this, yeah, this is really personal. Is, is another way of making this very personal. You've worked it's hard for this relationship that you're in, and that's going okay and obviously gone very well, and you've worked very hard for this book. You know, what's going great here and what's going wrong? Yeah, well, it's it's really interesting because um, it's about what you define as success, right? Mm-hmm. And I think, like, what I was just like rabbiting on about about that feeling after the method actors. That why I keep rabbiting on about that is it, you know, a simpler time, a purer time, you know. I. Th- a mistake is doing really well now it's doing really well and none of my books have done as well as this before but I'm chowing down on nicotine gum at the moment like more than you more than you way have. more than usual I've really like, I'm trying to remember what's the name of it temporomandibular jaw dysfunction I think that's what it's called so I've actually basically dislocated my jaw from chewing nicotine gum now I think it's just because I'm a little bit a little bit anxious you can't believe your luck And I'm, no it's not like that it's not that it's like I mean I, I have a I have a job where I have to um, I 
I have to be uh, smart and on point and my work actually is really partaking my job big time mm. and so there's a big responsibility and I you know I, I don't think if I were cut out to be uh, um, you know someone like in Emma Espina mm. yeah I would have been that person long ago but you know I'm a I'm a sort of bookish quiet person I want to I need quiet time alone to kind of cogitate stuff and I take time over it so um, I think the question you're asking is about like does success equal peace and yeah no it doesn't but um, there's really unneat answers to that mm. you know like like what equals peace mm. and and it's not it's not about it's not about like yeah I gave up all striving and I got peace it's you've actually there are things you want to achieve that give you a kind of peace but when you find that they're only giving you peace for a really really short time and you really need other stuff that you've got to you've got to nail down really quick afterwards well I don't even know if that's my question I think mm. like maybe my question is actually how important is it to have a really great running mate like you like a partner yeah a partner not just a partner but a partner who you know, you have a partner who not only gets what you do, but does what you do on some level. Right. Like, what? Well, she's been, and has been, like, like different partners at different mm. times. Mm. Like, when I met her on the call, she mm. was, she was, like, saying really confrontational shit. Like, awful, appalling shit, which really, <laughs> really annoyed me. <laughs> but it was, like, really focused and correct yeah correct <laughs> yeah let's just say that yeah and I was like god damn it you know yeah, someone's you're just seen poet, through my illusions like you're just a it was more like she'd read the <laughs> novels as well as the poetry you know? yeah 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 and so it was really hard and I don't know she she calls me on my bullshit all, always and mm. it's really useful that's what we should most crave in a partner and most correctly respond to right yeah and that's that's a real challenge like where, where you mm. become a mm. good person or a stupid person as you yeah. either go like yes I'll rise to that challenge or mm. no fuck you mm. yeah um there was the other I mean let's be frank about this at the point where Anna was getting her um her book of long listing for the China. Mm. At that point, it was pretty much the lowest point in my publication history where no one would touch me, and everything I was being, I was selling, was being turned down. Mm. Well, I wanted to ask you about this. So, Anna's a poet. She publishes a book of poetry, and then she writes a, a novel. When I say and then, like obviously you have a life together and you're both working, you live overseas, you do things. But she writes this book, The Chimes. It's long listed for the Booker Prize. And I wanted to know how, and I don't think you and I have actually ever talked about this directly. 
exactly how you felt as the partner of someone who is long listed for the Booker Prize, yet you are an author who at various points in your career has been reviewed and revered as someone who is publishing challenging work, groundbreaking work, intense work, all sorts of different things. But people are basically saying about you, you're an author who, you know, you you push the envelope. You're someone who is striving to do something different. And there you are with a partner who is being recognised on a level beyond what you've been recognised. This has to be the embodiment of mixed emotions. <laughs> so, the... Actually, for me, it was actually the worst possible moment in terms of my whole publication history. Because from the outside, like, you know, publish a novel every five years, it, it looks it looks fine. But it's like, dude, those novels were finished like two years in between each other. Mm. It took a lot longer to actually get them in the world. So... Yes, because your publishing history is interesting because you have yes. you suddenly start to have things lined right. up. That's right. We don't need to go through all of that. No, but no. you, you know, Lazy Boys comes out after. No, um, I understand. Actors. You prefer to focus on the jealousy between me and Anna. <laughs> Absolutely, no, that's fine. Uh, we can go wherever you want, but that's way more interesting. That's right. No, it was. I, I remember the feeling of being like the uncanniness of it. And how, when, when Anna first told me the first, because what, what I really don't want to dispel is what, what success dispels is magic. Mm. And when Anna first told me the idea for the book, we were in like the most favorite restaurant and it was a sacred place that we went to and I would not reveal the location. And she told me about it and I was just like, this is fucking amazing. You have to write this. This is wonderful. Just do it. And, you know, it, it took years, but then it got really big and it, and it got really big at the same time as it felt like my being really fucking sidelined. Like, mm. to be frank, you know, to be like, it was just coincidental, obviously. Mm -hmm. but it was like, this book was going really well and my my whole world was going really south. Mm, mm. And it was, yeah, it was, it was challenging. It was hard to, mm. it was hard to like be encouraging and sort of say like, this is amazing, well done, but you know, be careful because uh, it's fickle world. And, yeah, they'll you know, cheer you up and they'll spit you out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. such a cliche. Be, be like, that kind yeah, of yeah, idiot. Yeah. yeah, you don't want yeah. to say stuff like that. Yeah. So what you end up probably coming across is is slightly diffident, and it's horrible. And I I wish I wish I hadn't. I probably did sound like that, and I wish I hadn't. Um, At the same time, one of the lucky things is you have a child, so you can go. I'll just be the. I'll just be the. I'll just be a dad. I'll just be the caring parent that looks <laughs> after the child, and that's a great backstop, right? Like, I'll just send you off into the world to go and 
meet these obligations and do these things and I'll, you go and do your book tours and I'll, you do your book tours and I'll I'll look after our child which I'm totally into doing yeah but, and there's no resentment but the resentment but really there is the resentment isn't because of the child though the resentment is because of the machine spitting you out so I'm saying like that's a handy <laughs> that's a handy thing to have imagine if you didn't have the child together you'd just be sitting there going you know, when, when do I get to turn up like I've tried? Yeah. I, I it, It's a really harsh lesson, I think. I think you are sort of zeroing in on it because what you're talking about is essentially publicity cycles. Hmm. And um, you know, once you have done more than one, you realise, like, when you're looking f- forward to the first one, you're like... This is the eternal apocalypse which will forever define my life and journey and my fellowship. And it's like, actually, it's an entirely small event on mm. the publisher's mm. calendar. So you have a little window where, where stuff might happen for you. Mm. Uh, I don't know. I don't know if I want to say much more about this promotional stuff. It's kind of depressing. No, that's fine. That's fine. Um, you, you actually spit out these books quite quickly, as I say. Like, but they're there in the background. Like, they're things that you've been working on. You move around the world with Anna. You guys are in the UK. You've been in Japan. You come back to New Zealand, and she writes the chimes, and she has her success with that which is that she is long-listed for the Booker Prize, which is not quite unprecedented in New Zealand, but it's pretty, you know, like it's a... Reasonably famous. Yeah, it's it's a big claim to fame. Like, there are only a, a small handful of people that have achieved higher than that within that award. Um, so she does her thing with that. Like, she goes on the book tours. You have a child that you look after while that while she's doing that. You start working on other, or you continue working on other writing. You mentioned being at arguably your lowest ebb in terms of feeling like a chewed up, spat out, published novelist. You throw yourself into work, actual work, uh, actual non-writing work, but you're still writing. Do you give that away at any point? Like, is there a point where you're like, I'm actually not writing, I'm just doing work. I'm a father and I'm a husband and I'm working. No, I, th- I think I'm a... I think I'm a... Um, fellow and absolutely played with locusts kind of bipolar type dude on this um, perspective. It's like... There is nothing and I will never understand anything and the world is, you know, a Cormac McCarthy kind of landscape of waste and despair. And then it's like, oh, hold on. No, I'm really interested in this. (laughs) And here we go. Here we go. Yeah, here's the spark. And let's go. Mm. It's like, can I pursue that spark? That's probably the structural question. 
but um, what was the question? Well, it's just about how do you pick yourself up and carry on, like you from you talk about being at a low ebb with your huh? like people are not interested in what I'm doing, and then people are very interested in what Anna's doing. Okay. You know, you've you've obviously between you, you've got a family, and you've got a, you know, you've yeah, got to yeah. provide for the family, and you've got work that you want to do and that you throw yourself into and that you're interested in. And are you writing the whole time? Are you a creative writer who has to put things out, or are you a a father and a husband who has a job, and that's enough? <laughs> no. Uh but neither answer's wrong. Like, there's no wrong answers here. I think I've realised, like, like quite early on, that you actually have to design a space to do, Mm. to 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 do a job. You Mm. know, you actually have to. Like, I realised early on, it was like a really symbolic that back to that Delillo Velati thing. Is that you actually have to make a strong gesture and say, "This is what I'm doing for this Mm. period." You know, if I'm talking to someone who's like 19 and thinking about writing this, like I was, I had a drum kit, I saved up, bought a drum kit, and I'm gonna, like, I'm gonna, I'm drumming in this band, I'm doing this stuff, and it's like, but I also really want to write this novel, and that drum kit that I sold, and I made that decision to sell a drum kit in order to write. The novel mm. it still haunts my dreams because mm. it's, mm. it's fucking sweet it's symbolic yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. it's yeah, symbolic yeah. but it was also just objectively fucking beautiful <laughs> yeah yeah it was a tama and yeah. it had a pearl finish and mm. it was just gorgeous um and it was like the drum kit that i would want now but i sold it because i decided i was going to write the first draft of the lazy boys and I will always have that memory and that decision in my mind. And we should keep that in mind when we make decisions, that they're decisive and they're big, you know, and that you can signal them because they're strong. Um, I think the idea of, like, your partner having having really extraordinary success while you are struggling... You know, it w- it was really hard, and I really struggled with it because I was like, like, oh, man, god damn it, I'm in the bones of my ass. I'm really trying to make it here, and um, and I know the effect that like debut novels have, like the mm. the, the curse of the debut or the mm. blessing of the debut mm. is like here's the new voice, and they get promoted, and so many bodies fall by the wayside after. But I wanted to. And I was scared of um, being, you know, saying, oh, you know, be careful, be careful to Anna. Um, and, you know, if I had been a completely different profession, like if I'd been like a jazz drummer or something, you know, mm. it would have been such a better experience, mm. probably, mm. Mm. all over. Mm. But it was just one of those difficult things which we kind of wrestled our way through and actually managed to come out still together at the end of it I mean I have this thing like it's uh, you know think hearing you talk about that 
it's a bit like saying you were triggering me earlier with your Timaru stories. It's <laughs> like, you know, when I when I wrote my book that came out in whatever it was, 2012, I had an imposter syndrome about yeah. that book based on the fact that, you know, my wife's a better writer than I am. Like, right. I'm a journalist. I'm a music writer. I'm a guy just putting stories together. I'm not trying to be a novelist. I don't have that capability, but I live with someone who wrote an extraordinary novel who's not writing a novel anymore. Yeah, she's not adding to that. And I had that, you know, so yeah. I had a version of that. So I went to a book launch that was for my book that was successful and I went on Kim Hill and I did the I did a actually a relatively busy publicity tour because I'd been on TV and radio, so there were TV and radio that wanted to talk to me. And the whole time I thought, Katie did this, and she did this better than me in terms mm. of her book is a better piece of writing. Like, I know that. You know, what I'm doing is just recycling stories. She invented one. You know, I, I had that. So I had my version of that. And I don't know how, I still don't know quite how I feel about that beyond she you know again maybe it arrived at a good time in our lives and that Oscar was so young I mean he was just born when I started writing the book mm. so the furthest thing from her mind was writing a book so it was my turn because for whatever reason you know it was my turn because it just wasn't in her mind to be doing one but I've never really quite worked that out I've always gone you know I don't feel I don't feel like an imposter in the publishing trade like I don't feel like my books shouldn't exist but I do feel like maybe I got a little bit of unnecessary interest in my book and I wish that I could steer that towards Katie and her writing but actually that's silly because they they operate separately they're two separate things it's funny isn't it yeah, I think I. It's really interesting hearing you talk about it because it's like you you guys are. It's like you're doing two completely different kinds of surgery or something. Well, I've always said that to people. Uh, you know, people have said, "Oh, what's it like living with another writer?" And I'm like, "It's the best. We don't even do the same things." Yeah. You know, so you're right. It is like two different. It's so good because when. Katie looks at my writing, she looks at with, you know, she's not, you know, she looks at it with an eye that is not similar to mine, and she's yeah. able to actually point out really good things, and if I want to ignore them, whatever, and I'm a little bit the same with her writing, like, I come at it with an eye. It's interesting with Katie, because she has, she has, like, um, the coldest, but also most gentle eye, like, mm. when, she, when she gives you a criticism, mm. You know, it can be brutal, but it's correct. Well, it's it's brought actually kind of quite gently, but mm -mm. it's but then unpack it. So right. emphatic, like it's so informed. You don't pay, so, yeah. you pay attention to that you, at your own peril. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's correct, and yeah, it yeah. is brutal. That's yeah, and, like, and it's like yeah, yeah. Don't don't ignore it. One hundred and fifty years of history behind that particular criticism. Mm. Just. Mm. bring to sway on upon you mm. so she's been a close reader of your work yeah 
you guys met in the in the IAML yeah way back and you value her comment on your work obviously yeah so um it's well we you meet on on a workshop arrangement type that like like that that you get nine people who are you've never met before and you might not have ever have heard of commenting on you and then like really fast really fast you start paying attention to certain voices right and it's not just about like who you're attracted to it's also about who like singles out your weaknesses that mm. as you know that they are um, um, I don't think Katie ever did that to me I don't think she ever <laughs> like well, I think she was more gentle about it but she's she's always smarter about that stuff she's always smarter than you know most people in the room mm. you know mm. yeah, she's always like maneuvers around the person who thinks they're the smartest person in the room so so Katie was an obvious choice for um, so I was thinking about who am I going to send like the last book to she was an obvious choice because there were two people there was an old old mentor of mine and, and I thought like who's who's like really professional right now and actually totally engaged in a, in a cutthroat professional world but also incredibly literary and a humanitarian person so it's obviously Katie so this is a mistake which yeah. is the most recent book and this book has been well very I mean it's still in its run because you're, you're it's been published it's been reviewed it's been well received but it's going to go on to be published internationally and um so I remember very well Katie going Carl's new book is amazing and I said great I'm sure it is like I've read Carl's work he's great and she said you can't read it like you know he's given it to me and you can't read it and I just respected that but was very jealous of not jealous in the sense I didn't expect you to send it to me I just was thought I just thought you know like it would be cool to read it because I'm sure it's good mm. and I waited my turn and then I read it and thought it was amazing and I loved it and I would tell you if I didn't think that for what it's worth which might be nothing but this book has so. been well received and it's incredibly tight this book it's quite the opposite of Method Actors and it was interesting at your launch to hear your publisher Fergus Barrowman essentially reference that he basically said I feel like this book is a response to something that happened around about not quite 20 years ago but you know <laughs> he made some comment of like and I wondered how you felt about that like was he telling you I got it right all those years ago and told you you wrote too big too deep too too long and now you've pulled pulled your shit in and now I'm going to publish you or did you just go oh yeah cool uh -huh. look it's nice to come home as a New Zealand author it's nice to come home to a publisher but um, you know all that sort of emo stuff I was talking about before it, 
nothing matters when you've got a, like a big a big US publisher mm. nothing really matters mm. when people get the project mm. it doesn't really matter you know it's like fuck all you guys it's alright um the when it, when it's a local book like it's a local book like this one is it, I think it's really nice to have a to have a local publisher um and you know Fergus is a great publisher for this book like he's found the right cover and the first response to the to the cover was it's a mistake and no it's kind of alright actually <laughs> um and he's he's been it's been great what was the question I'm just curious about if you were um, if you thought that it was a bit of a dig that he made around you know a mistake being the response to Method Act as being you know arguably too big too broad too expansive right I th- I think the method actors was perfectly placed for its time mm. and yet it, it's a fairly short time in novel years but I'm, the idea of publishing that novel now it's like such a no go mm. nobody's got a taste for that kind of like slow explorative kind mm. of like let, let's look at the sentence and mm. think about how it might tease into like I really wrote this book thinking oh, a mistake I mean thinking about like what what do we actually uniquely have to offer in terms of prose you know what, what does prose actually have to offer in terms of like the vastness of mm. riches that that are being offered us as consumers that look and also that don't betray the verities that you know we've kind of established like how do we how do we battle with chernobyl on the one hand and big little lies or you know, <laughs> you know whatever whatever show you that's mm. like turns your wheels that like mm. gets gets your adrenaline going thinking okay i'm gonna watch that yeah how do we actually like transcend those pleasures and channel into the things that prose fiction does better than anything else mm. it's like um, okay first of all it's got to be short <laughs> it's got to be shorter and um, you know I, I tried to do that you wrote this book in a very short it's, it's ended up in a very short form how much of it was trimmed to fit that form? How much of you was saying, I only have X amount of writing time? Like, how did the style and the final form yeah, meet? Yeah, yeah, it's, it's like a weird dance because it was like, okay, dude, you've got two days a week mm. while the kids are at school and you can write it then. And also, that is what you want to do. You want to keep it like a super short 
Mm. It's got to be verging mm. dangerously on a novella. Mm. And it's got to be like something that Didion would, would say. Mm. That's a little bit too a little bit long. short. Really? <laughs> no, she's she's going to be like this dangerously short. Right. right. Be careful. Yeah. Because I love, I was thinking like, I love the idea that the EP in music doesn't yeah, yeah. really exist anymore. Yeah. But. Yeah. but it's one the, of the most gorgeous art But forms. the perfect thing at the moment is the EP that's in between an EP and an album. It's like yeah. half an hour long and yeah. it, you have to check because we stream things now, we don't buy things. You have to go, is this an EP or is this an album? Because, right. you know, Nick Drake's Pink Moon was only 28 minutes long yeah. and it was an album. But, like, you can get EPs that are nearly 40. But you have to be good enough to just. But that's right. But it's it doesn't matter if there's 12 songs or 6 songs. It's like, what's good here? Like, what's... And, you know, SJD's just released the Miniatures album, which is... 17 songs in 20 minutes like it's the one minute songs one one and a half minute songs and it's great like it's basically an EP but Mm. to him it's the first volume of an album and he's going to do another one and it's like you've sort of done that with the book like this is almost a novella but it's a novel and if someone wants to read this as novella that's fine you're not going to care like that's fine like it's a yeah. Yeah. I think, I mean, I I get you, but the, the it took an enormous amount of, like, time and thinking to actually, like, wind it up. So I, I wrote up probably the first two-thirds in different orders, shuffled mm. it around, mm. and then I was like, I don't know, I don't know what happens. And it, it was really fucking important what happens mm. because it was a it's essentially a novel about um, people making decisions or things happening to people and what happens to them and then I had to like figure that out and you know usually my decisions were based about like um about style or about yeah well I'm actually opening a void up like what are my decisions about it's a really interesting question. one of the cool things about this book is that it's called a mistake and the the action and the mistake happen you know the action kicks off straight away and the mistake happens very early on yeah. So there's almost not a spoiler alert around this book. Like, I wrote a review of this and I've read a few reviews and it's like, you can't really... I'm sure you can, but you can't really spoil this book in a review. Like, I'm sure there are reviews that have been better written than others, but you kind of can't really give too much away because, you know, you give it away in the first section, the first chapter, you give away the the action that everything responds to afterwards, that everything reacts to. Yeah, I mean, what what happens to the patient, the initial patient who who goes under the surgery, um, that kind of is the biggest spoiler of them all. Mm. Um, it's kind of like a 5,000 word episode that leads up to that fate. Mm. Um, which 
you know, I, I would think it'd be pretty clearly signalled from the name of the novel. And the cover. And the cover. But the idea is that um, by that point, you know what's going on. And this is how you are involved in any operation mm. on any person who's critically ill. Is that you have to do several thousand things to try and make them, save them, make them well again. And at the end of that, it may be all futile anyway. So I love that this book has so obviously come from you. I mean, we can or can't get into this. We don't have to. But, like, I love that this book has come from your professional work over the last few years, but it's also, like, an allegory or a metaphor for so many things outside of just the the action that happens in the book and your, your technical understanding of what pulled you into doing this. Like, you work in medicine, you understand the world, and you create that very well, but actually this is about... This is as much about um, how we frame mistakes and what a single mistake can mean in the context of a person's career and how people with no knowledge of what a person has gone through and essentially like what we've been talking about with you, what brings them to the dance is, you know, everything that brings a person to the dance is actually important. You know, you've created a metaphor for the idea that we're judged on our actions instantly and the thought that what brings us to the dance, all of the 10,000 hours that it might take us to achieve perfection in something is completely irrelevant if we haven't solved someone's problem instantly, if we haven't reacted with the perfection that a person expects us to instantly and whatever's going on in our lives and any other things that could come in that could you know any little things that could you know impact on a person just doing their job or the fact that a person can have an off day is is under the microscope here yeah 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 so um what do I think about this? What what we've learned from the studies is that people rate surgeons based upon their manner, based upon their relationship with them, mm. based upon weird metrics which do not in any way correlate with the quality of the surgeon as we measure that mm. surgeon in terms of quality. And those measures are contentious. They're things like mortality and morbidity. So what we know about like how people choose doctors in the United States and you know where, where choice is an option and where we can actually start measuring this stuff at a reasonable scale is that it's a black box like we don't know why people choose doctors it's like with the free market completely breaks down in a fascinating way it's like everybody knows like market failure happens when 
the um, consumer and the producer have unequal amounts of information. So health is the obvious example of market failure, right? Mm -hmm. And it's just compounded in innumerable other ways. So market failure happens when you apply it to health in any case. But when you have this moral and ethical force towards transparency, that's when things get really complicated. Because is health a private service or is it a public service? If it's a public service, it requires a certain level of transparency. What does transparency mean in that situation? So a lot of my work in like the last sort of almost four years now has been trying to like figure out what this might mean because it means different things in different countries. Like it's different here to Australia, UK. It means different things in New Zealand to the certainly to the uh, United States of America. So what what's relevant to people in New Zealand? Mm. What do you want to know? Like, do you really want to know? You're in the ambulance, you've had a heart attack, you're halfway to, let's say, Wellington Central Hospital. Mm-hmm. And you pick up your phone and you go like, oh gosh, you're not doing so well in this particular rating. Everybody said that's what we don't want to hear. So we're negotiating those kinds of ideas, like how do you publish and how you show those kinds of information that are actually relevant, stuff that people actually really care about Mm. and change them and make them better. How... I mean, there's so many amazing things in this short book. It's a couple of hundred pages long. How did you... I mean, I remember you asking me some time ago, sending me a message and saying, I'm writing a book. Uh, give me some ideas around what a Ryan Adams concert would be like in Wellington. <laughs> and I remember thinking, why are you asking yeah, yeah. me that? Beyond the fact that you knew I'd been. Yeah. And I was like, you know, cool, I'll tell you. And I told you some stuff. But when I read it in the book, I was like, I mean, first of all, <laughs> your book comes out and then Ryan Adams gets cancelled, which is brilliant timing yeah, yeah, in yeah. terms of you could never predict that. Um, in terms of, but you had already positioned him as some kind of phony in the context of your book. And we could have done a whole podcast on this, of course. So I'm really bringing, you know, you said bringing the A game, I'm really bringing the Ryan Adams game at this point. <laughs> But, you know, like there is so much in this short novel that is ostensibly about a single mistake. Mm -hmm. But what was it to you that wanted you to write about Ryan Adams and a Ryan Adams concert? Like, why? Yeah, yeah. Uh, why him? Why was it not any other number of people that have visited Wellington over the years? And, you know, why was it him? Because okay, you were not. Because okay. you were not. All right, now's the now's the time <laughs> to out this fucking story, which yeah. you teased so long, you bastard. Mm. All right, I'm sorry. The dedicatee of this um, novel, Carl James Patton. I'm sorry, but we went to this. We went to a Bruce Springsteen concert, and you know, 
this loops back right to the beginning of this podcast of us talking mm. about you know small town New Zealand and white bread you know blue collar New Zealand Bruce Springsteen meant enormous amounts to us and then I went to the Bruce Springsteen concert in Christchurch and when was it 26? a couple of years ago yeah, yeah two or three years ago 17 or something yeah we were, we went to a um, we went to an Airbnb and we were driving out through Linwood and it was a Tuesday afternoon and this is well before the Mosque attack mm. obviously and there was a there was a guy standing on the corner drinking a can of beer with his shirt off in the middle of Linwood on a Tuesday afternoon with a full on probably forty centimeter diameter swastika tattooed on his chest that you know we were getting ready to go to a Bruce Springsteen concert so about three houses away from that you know we had a few drinks we went to this Bruce Springsteen concert you know me and this friend of mine who I love and we've had this relationship Mm. around Bruce Springsteen for a long long time going back to you know me asking it like I think I was about eight that Dancing in the Dark we played at my funeral and we go to this concert and there's just this edge hanging over and there's Bruce like grinning throughout his whole concert and this whole this whole dark air carrying over everything Mm. anyway I haven't answered your question, but I think there was a there was a performative edge around Bruce that I saw in um, Ryan Adams. Like, mm-hmm. the, the, there's a way he uses his ability to to hide something that's you know, like he gets rewarded and applauded mm-hmm. for stuff that. That actually isn't what people really need and want. One of your characters in the book says one of my favourite things that I love to point out to people when they tell me, you know, I can't believe you said that about a particular person in a review or why didn't you go to this person or rah, rah, rah. They basically say, I don't believe. They use words around, they use language around the idea of I don't believe him, I don't know mm. that I believe. And that's always been my strongest defense I think yeah in terms of arguing around things I don't like in music in the arts in general but music it's really because we've we've talked about this you know it's important to us like when we're there rifling through the record shop or reading the NME or rip it up or whatever it was or now like looking through the sites we want a connection we want to believe that the person means something and if we if we spot them as a phony Mm. you know it's it's the game over basically and it feels like with him like he had it's so strange i keep going back to that track like i used it so Mm. glibly like i knew that was the track give me so good Mm. give me something good give Mm. me Mm. And every time I return to it, I'm like, 
I find like better things in it. Mm. But I still I distrust him. That's a Tom Petty more and more. Yeah. And it's more than that. Like there are more things he's ripping off. But it's off like just a gifted that. gifted ripper. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's very good. That's the thing that's frustrating about it. Like yeah. it's not you haven't just ripped Tom Petty off badly, you've done it very well. So, and that's so well. So it's cynical, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And how many how many wonderful <laughs> people have have been fooled and mm. and it was writing that sequence was really about seeing Bruce mm. spring singer Christchurch. And we've talked about this yeah. off mic that and I can't No think bring of, it up. I can't think of previous examples. No no I was just gonna say like I can't actually right now think of an exact example but I've been to shows where I've had my whole belief in looking forward to seeing the person I might have even gone through their catalogue on the way to the Completely show shaking. over the last few weeks you know previous weeks and then I watch the show and it's not even that it's bad it's yeah. just that it's only okay enough that the chapter is completely fucking closed for me I'm done yeah. signed off and it sounds like that was the case for you with Springsteen yeah well, and I, I've not got to see Springsteen but I almost feel like that would have been the case for me with him because yeah. he is that kind of pretender where the people that believe that he's authentic, fine, good on you, that's okay, but there is a level of Sorry. mugging, grinning, like not quite believable, you know? Yeah, this is really brutal stuff for a Springsteen fan. Brutal <laughs> stuff. The Do you know, one of the, grinning. I think it's the very no, first. No, no, no. Uh, no I. I what what is going on here is <laughs> is that we went to this concert we're mm. building up to this concert for me and a friend of mine from a small town mm. you know we've been we've been waiting we've been making jokes about like using the lyrics for so many years and then he's finally, a hero of sorts he's a hero and we yeah. finally get to see him in Christchurch of yeah. all places when you know when we're mm. brought up mm. when he's actually like helped us and guided us through our through our, you know, our lives coming up through you know, the work he's going to sing City of Ruins he's going to maybe sing My yeah, but we're like, we, but we know that we yeah, know yeah, that yeah, yeah. We, we don't want to hear City of Ruins yeah, know, yeah, we, we yeah. know he's not going to do that because he's too yeah. smart for that yeah. what he's going to do is he's going to we don't know Yeah. what the fuck is he going to do yeah. how can he fucking deliver on the legend it's impossible yeah, 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 yeah. it's impossible but we prepare nevertheless mm. and we get ready and we get ready and you know we in the end we get a four-hour concert mm. and it's too long in the middle of which i have a back spasm i'm carried out there in a wheelchair um it's it's he i cannot get this image out of my head of bruce springsteen singing at this blank crowd he can't see any of their faces with this huge grin on his face grinning through every single song it was haunt it haunts me it's like mm. i just see him now and he's absolutely killed himself as a performer for me he's like a he's like a mask and a performer and i i really cannot trust him it's really horrible to say this out loud in a podcast but <laughs> it's, it's really it's heartbreaking it's heartbreaking the only thing I can go to now is Nebraska maybe but mm. 
It's it's god awful. That what that concert wow. has done for me. And Christchurch, you know, like the the city of return. Yeah. The city of ruins and all that. Mm. It was also studious and it was oh, just That's just, just making me feel a little bit smug that I didn't go and see him. Mm. Like that's all that's doing. But no, I, I, no, that's not true. I, I feel your pain because I do know that it was I a have... a build-up and it was personalised yeah. around friendships and stuff. Yeah, no, no, no. I do know that I've been to shows and I've just been like, oh, man, this is a letdown and not, you know, like on a profound level and everything that I built this up to be. It was more like you're being entertained. Mm. I'm an entertainer and I do this all over the mm, world. Mm. It was that feeling. Mm. Like, that's the worst feeling is that you believe in this person as some sort of magician some yeah. sort of um, artist I have an and they're actually an entertainer yeah, yeah. and that's there's a big it's the ultimate yeah. betrayal isn't it yeah yeah. there's a big thing about like is Not, a person the priest it's the snake oil mm, salesman is the person the artist or the actor and if they're the artist they're okay but if they're the actor it's you know, they're just going to... It's beautifully put. That's the problem. And people talk about, like... And there are people that really test you. Yeah. Is David Bowie an actor or an artist? Well, I think... Couldn't he have been both? That's Is fine. Nick Cave... That's Springsteen. Yeah, Springsteen, yeah, yeah. he's really pushing that, isn't Yeah. He? Is Nick Cave the actor or, you know, yeah. the artist? Is he just an actor? And people have their different, you know... Bob Dylan, another one for some people, you know. And we all crave people like Nick Drake. Yeah. Like, like the pure gone They're ones. cut off, so the yeah. argument stops because they were cut off, you so know. don't have to live Jeff, Jeff, you know, Buckley for some people, not for me, but like for some people I get that he's the, in a way, in a next generation, yeah. you know, Nick Drake. But Richie Mann. Yeah. I mean... Nick Drake, you know, like, listening to Pink Moon in particular, like, that album, you know, discovering that, like, hearing that for the first time, and just going, what the fuck is this? Like, who is this guy? He recorded that whole album in a couple of hours. It was done in the middle of the night. He knew, he actually knew he was going to kill himself when he made that album, and that's not a nice thing to go into that album knowing, and I didn't when I first heard it. But it's impossible to, when you know that, it's impossible to hear that music and not take some of that on board. Yeah, I don't know those facts. You know, it's it was made in a couple of hours. It was pretty much recorded live. He did it in the middle of the night. Like there was a one overdub, I think, a piano overdub, really? you know, on the first track, and it's the rest of it is basically solo guitar and voice and I like some of the other Nick Cave stuff um, Nick Drake stuff I love it but Pink Moon is always going to be the one for me because hearing that understanding that story it arriving you know I guess most importantly it arriving in my life at the time when it did yeah. is the thing which it always is with music you know it just turning up there's those three Nick Drake albums and mm. each each of a piece but they like they have slightly different moods and they are like novels aren't they or yeah. novellas like his things like just the fact there's only three of them it and is Pink a bit Moon Pink Moon is just like the 
shortest, sharpest, horriblest ending mm. to the story that mm. sort of positive. That's right. It's like there's hope at the beginning. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like it's hope such decline. a It's just yeah. dreadful. He was what twenty six. It's ludicrous. You know, like it's just. It's weird for me because we were we lived just on the other side of the hill where all this were happening. Mm. So we. Mm. We'd actually like sort of go up Haverstock Hill and we'd see the house or the place where he wrote the songs. And, mm. and it, there's a weird interreaction with class there. Like he managed to find a place, like a person with no money whatsoever mm. was sort of basically squatting in a place that's now worth you know, eight million pounds yeah. to buy a house. There. So it's. Yeah, it's. It, there's, there's a class dynamic where um, that we would do well to keep in our minds. Mm, mm, mm. We've got very soporific, but um, I was thinking of two, uh, two things. First of all, the first gift I ever gave you was the Essential Bruce Springsteen. Mm. I bought you that triple CD of the essential Bruce Springsteen because I knew you were a fan back when buying someone a CD might have meant something doesn't mean a thing now <laughs> but right. it might have meant something then and I bought you that as a gift very early on and, and when we first met and I think it was a birthday present or something like that um, and so I've always known about you that you're a Springsteen fan and I've always been a very you know, I say I'm a fair weather Springsteen fan, but I actually know his career very well. But I, yeah. I call myself a fair weather fan, I think because I've never seen him live. I think that's the real reason <laughs> I, call, I, I say that. Uh, I think the fruitful direction to take that into is that actually Springsteen was actually kind of a lifeline for where we came from. Um, I don't know what it was like in the Hawke's Bay, but in Timaru, that shit was real as a motherfucker for us. It wasn't about coal mining. It was Mm. about timber. Mm. You know, it was about guys finishing, cutting down trees five days a week and then emerging from that and looking to find a social situation where you'd find a suitable mate mm. and then get a little bit of aggression out and also, you know, get on with your life. You know? Well let's think about that lifestyle. Yeah. And we don't really talk about logging as a kind of a working class mm. source of like music and culture. In the South Island, but it was a real major, 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 and still is a major part of what's going on. Down there. Well, I have a very weird reason for liking Springsteen. I did it as a reaction to my mum, who could never stand him, and my mum introduced me mom. to my mum. I love your mum more and more. My mum introduced me to so many great things with music, yeah, and yeah. I believed her the whole time. She taught me about. Lou Reed and the fact that you can argue against somebody but it's yeah. fine Lou Reed Fleetwood Mac The Rolling Stones Santana um, Buddy Rich um, 
the Glenn Miller big band, all of these things come from my mum. But she was always adamant that Bruce Springsteen was no good. He was not of interest to her. Not no, no good. No good. She just didn't. Well, she didn't believe him. Right. You know, it's that thing. She didn't believe him. She thought he was a phony, and yeah. I didn't. I thought there was something more to him. But actually, like the first, the first couple of records of his, the first few times I checked him out, I thought he was a phony too. And then, like, I heard Nebraska, and I heard, um, you know, the acoustic records, like the the this really song-based storytelling things yeah. and the movie soundtrack Real songs. The, yeah, I was never actually, and I've never been a massive fan of the E Street Band. I'm a fan of Bruce Springsteen, the songwriter, more so than I'm a fan of Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band. Yeah. So I liked that stuff. And I also just was really interested in the fact that it's, one of the few things, like, I was able to go back to my mum, like, when I left school, I was able to go back to mum and go, you should check out Prince, he's fucking great. Prince did amazing things. She's like, yeah, I'm into this. Or I'd play her, like, the Red Hot Chili Peppers, and she'd be like, this is pretty cool. You know, whatever, like, she was interested in the stuff. Primus, like, I got her into Primus, and she thought some Primus stuff was cool. But we could never agree on that. And I just always found that a really interesting sticking point. Like, why do you not like Bruce Springsteen? She just did not believe him. It's weird, yeah. isn't it? It's weird, that shit. I, I think going to that concert, like, I, I, had a, I had a sense that there were multiple Bruce Springsteen. And obviously mm. there were. There were. I mean, success changes people. But... There was a residual kind of trust or, you know, mm. fatal belief in in the, the authenticity myth and then just just watching him grin at me for four hours. It's too much. Completely undid it. It's too much. Yeah. And it was really sad. It was really it was like a a, a loss. Mm. A loss. Mm. But I I'll manage. So you release a mistake. It's been um, well received. It's been talked up. It's mostly been very positively reviewed in New Zealand. Like people have liked it. It has sold well. You ran out of copies. It's been reprinted. It's been re. You know, like it's it's done well. You've done many talks about it. You've been on Kim Hill. You've done the circuit. How do you feel right now about the book? Hmm. I feel like, um, Ian Holm and Alien <laughs> talking about the alien. And he says, <laughs> I admire its purity. <laughs> I do. I admire its purity. I admire its that I mm, organized it so that it was in a proper shape. Mm. Is that what you mean? Yeah, I'm just. I mean, like you know, like most people will talk about leaving something where it is. You can't because it hasn't finished yet. Like you're gonna see it 
republished, like sent off into the world. I can't do anything about it. Like it's yeah, yeah, like you've given agreed. you've given birth to it. It exists, but mm. you're going to have to talk about it for a bit longer, and you're going to have to hear what people think of it for a bit longer. Do you tune out to what people think of it, or are you interested? Like, I guess I'm talking reviews, but they can be informal reviews as well. Like, it doesn't have to be the recent negative review that goes to town on it. I think we're sort of talking about. Um, you know, no, I don't care. I don't care. I don't care what they say. Mm. I mean, they've said it doesn't make any difference. It doesn't make any difference at all. I don't care. Mm. And so what comes next from you? Well, now I, I find um, that I start to feel more angsty and looking like, like my skin itches and I'm, I'm looking for something looking for a weight to steady me so you look for a weight to like assume to, to get your body under and steady yourself and like a new project that's what I'm looking for but very very quietly and slowly mm. Mm. have you got work in the can that you might revisit or look to get published or Simon are you always I have an entire novel which is just sitting there (laughs) waiting for fucking I might have even known that before I asked that question yeah I think I knew that so that's probably why I asked that so are you thinking that that's next or are you I don't know I look at that novel and I think like I love, um, I love the material, but um, I think there's this, the world that, you know, four years ago, a novel like that could have emerged into the world, mm. but maybe, maybe not now, maybe it's, maybe the, in that experience of living with a piece of art that you mm. make in a moment. Yeah, even if the moment is like twelve months. Mm. Yeah, why should prose be different from film? You know, why should we not make something and then re-examine it four months later and say, "What what does that mean? Does that mean something different?" Mm. And we should reframe it. Hence, so this thing I wrote, which was like deeply personal to me. But why should it be deeply personal to anybody else? I think I'm speaking. I think it was a very '90s metaphor, '90s kind of paradigm is applying mm. to it. Mm. You're very self-satisfied kind of novelists are powerful, interesting people. What they say is important. How do you feel about some of the novelists that you've been influenced by, attached to, like? that are arguably quite problematic. I mean, obviously, Brett Easton Ellis we've talked about, mm. uh, Dave Foster Wallace, and we haven't really talked about, but, well, you've mentioned, but 
even JG Ballard, like, these are quite problematic people in a lot of people's lives now. How is JG Ballard problematic? I just think, like, people find... How is he unproblematic? Yeah, I just find... <laughs> I just think, I mean, I haven't read enough of his work to, like, build any case myself, but I just know that through the adaptations as well as some of the work, people find it to be challenging, I guess, and challenging should be good. That's how I see challenging, but in this day and age, it's uncomfortable for a lot of people. It's a really big discussion to ask of a father of two at half past twelve in mm. the night. I'll just signal this. Mm. Um, I think that if you if you choose moral positions. From artists who are not actually engaging in, I need to revisit this whole moral scene of that project. Mm-hmm. We can we exit. Can, all right, we can be cut pretty soon. Let's let's let's, let's ditch that. And, that was um, a horrible dude. Yeah, yeah. No, that's, let's that's like that. another two-hour discussion. Yeah, that's true. I guess I guess the. Um, the question, I guess, that I have at the end of all of this, because we've talked for ages, is um, how, what are you going to do next and how do you find it sustainable to work? Like, how... It's all about, what, how the fuck do you manage to do this? What? Yeah, how... <laughs> exactly, like, how are you going to do it? Like, what are you going to do? And how are you going to do it? The next like, thing. Yeah, whatever the next thing is. Whether it's the next... I've just had the fucking baby. Why do I have to have another one? <laughs> well, I, I I assume that you will and will want to. Will you not? No, I really have serious doubts about it. <laughs> what will you do next? I will live. Yeah, man. It's not live, like, people aren't listening to it right now. I'm pointing it at you because I'm still recording, but it's not live. Do you want to talk about a mistake? or? Yeah, well, we can talk more about that, but I just want to know what you want to do next, like... Um, well, the story with next is, is tricky because I have a job. And I have now. I now have two children, mm. and it's a really boring story. It's a really Springsteenian story. <laughs> You've been like, doing a lot of grinning. Yeah, it's like how do you care? How do you care for? Because you have a really strong feeling signaled to you by the world that you're the only one shielding this mm. group of people between mm. them and. Yeah, a bad life. So that's what I am working towards is helping the little things I love with their curly hair, you know, to healthy, yeah, healthy and happy lives. Make it in the world. Get somewhere. 
yeah, and it's really scary. But then I'm like, yeah, fuck. I'm thinking about there needs to be, I want to do a next thing. I want to do a next creative thing. I want all my own internal creative life to be alive. How am I going to balance this? Mm. So it becomes boring stuff about money and time. Now it's up 